This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive. Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today... <laughs> um. <laughs> it's been... Okay, it's been... It, it's been a pretty yeah. wild month in all the topics that we've talked about. We've talked about some very hardcore things, some very far-out things, some very dark and probably real things. Um... um. Well, all right, let's not, like, immediately get into, like, this sort of weird, like, epistemological, like, uh, distancing or, like, hedging around around <laughs> the issue, because I feel like that's one of the things that's so interesting about this topic is because it is, like, the, at least in American, like, popular culture or discourse around this stuff, it's one of those things that's, like, you know, uh, when we were doing uh, our recent uh, interlock episode, I guess that was on Alara. Um, you know, we read an article that was like, oh, this BCCI banking scandal, you know, it might be the real thing. Like, usually I scoff at, uh, these conspiracy theories, you know, and their ideas mm-hmm. of like Elvis might still be alive. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's really, e- it's even more the whole Elvis might still be alive than the idea that Elvis might still be alive. It's like the perfunctory, like dumb thing that fools believe in. Yeah. Um, and but, who can, you know, and, uh, who can forget that on, uh, the really, one-of-a-kind premium television show, The Newsroom, by um, oh, right. wa- yeah. Walk and Talk mm-hmm. auteur Aaron Sorkin in the early 2010s, that one of the chief like characteristics of one of the characters in The Newsroom, played by Dev Patel, was his wacky belief in this quote-unquote conspiracy theory, which I remember kind of thinking was i mean uh, a combination of sort of like bad boomer writing and also a really kind of cheap straw man attack uh particularly in the context of a respected news network like uh, acn or whatever it was called <laughs> um yeah, ACN, that basically you had this one uh, kind of maybe like I mean, there are a couple characters that you could probably call like millennials generationally, mm-hmm. um, but he was like the youngest kid on the staff, uh, and he was obsessed with, uh, you know, quote unquote conspiracy theories. Um, but you know, Aaron Sorkin, you know, swiftly kind of strawmans the shit out of this character 
by basically making like the one conspiracy that he is most fascinated with and is always trying to get Will McAvoy to do a story on is this topic, which is, uh, I don't know. Do you want to do the honors, uh, in order to, to keep this epistemologically sound? Um, um, yeah, well, I mean, I feel like there's going to be, uh, people are going to know when they click on it, right? Unless they can't read. You're right. Uh, you're right. It's not uh, a surprise. You know, exactly. Uh, but yeah, well, uh, anyway, so yeah, this is our Bigfoot episode, which I feel like <laughs> is kind of like a long time coming. Um, you know, we were always going to do the Bigfoot episode and I'm glad that like, this is one of the first like cryptid ones that we're doing. And I, you know, I really like did, uh, I kind of arguably maybe went too far in a few places in terms of doing like the research for this episode. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I did a lot, uh, and I got a lot of stuff that I think is, is pretty good, pretty intriguing, you know, um, and a little bit, you know, off the beaten path as some of this stuff goes. Um, and uh, I think that uh, we'll probably, like, you know, revisit this topic, I think, in the future. Uh, but, you know, just because I feel like it's one that's really endlessly very interesting. Um, and it, you know, yeah, like, uh, I mean, I think that people have, like, a certain, uh, you know... Uh, reserve of uh ideas about this that i uh, like immediately come to mind there's a certain kind of association with it like in in the popular culture with like something that's like uh basically it's a stand-in for like an absurd belief uh that goes in the face of evidence i think that there's interesting like wrinkles to that when you think about like kind of the genealogy uh you know no pun intended uh around this uh around this idea of like the wild man of the woods Mm -hmm. you know uh and uh i think that a good place to kind of orient our exploration i feel like we're gonna you know zigzag all over the place in terms of talking about uh this uh we found a couple of um you know uh sort of standout dimensions of it that i think would be good to to cover uh in in this episode but i think to, to orient it i kind of picked out two uh interesting little uh stories the first one um is a, a brit a poem from Brittany or breton uh you know uh sort of a poem um called mm-hmm. uh it's a dialogue between uh, arthur and uh or king, you know king arthur uh and a uh figure uh called uh gwench Khlan, um mm-hmm. who is like this sort of uh you know mysterious figure but he's basically uh you know like a, a wild man um, and he, mm-hmm. you know, he lives in the woods. Uh, they kind of talk about a little bit who he is, but, um, he has some connections with, uh, with Merlin, even like the figure of Merlin, uh, you know, uh, maybe you think of Merlin as being like, kind of like druidic or whatever, but the association of him living in the woods, um, you know, is something that kind of, uh, in some stories, you know, of course there's a lot of stuff going into this Arthurian corpus or the corpus around Merlin himself. And a lot of that stuff kind of emphasizes his sort of wildness and, the story is, is uh, one example of that, although he's not, of course, explicitly Merlin in this. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's also a Scottish beast uh, called uh, Leolokan. I hope I'm saying that right. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and this name might be uh, like a, a corruption of, or a permutation of something that means like sort of brother or, or sibling, um, which is an interesting thing to kind of follow. But uh, Gwenk Halan mm. uh, itself, according to this uh, translation by Anton Menard that I'm taking uh, this from, uh, kind of, uh, he says that um, it's uh, the element cloth is cognate with the Welsh cloth uh, and the modern Breton clenv, meaning sick, weak, or ill. Gwyn is the word for wine in both Welsh and Breton, and it is possible the name simply means wine sickness. 
but the word for white or holy in Welsh is Gwyn or Gwen in Breton, and the name uh, were part of if and if the name were part of insular tradition, as is Arthur, it might mean holy illness or more loosely madness. Mm. Um, that's an interesting sort of thing to to pursue. But anyway, so this is uh, the actual poem itself is kind of this is how they situate uh, Gwen So. Um, through the grace of God he lived. He had, beside that he was in the world, nothing but green leaves. He didn't have as much of a shelter as the other ones did who lived. He didn't have as much food. He was seen beneath a hood. In his life in the world, he had glory from God night and day. He didn't lack anything. Uh, is in parentheses there. Through the grace of God, he knew how to illuminate the bright gift of holy time. So he has prophetic abilities, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, King Arthur grabbed him on Sunday when the sun rose one fine morning, and through guile and subtlety, he seized his hand and took him. If you ask me without fault in the name of God, I beg you, you will tell King Arthur what holy signs will befall in Brittany before this world comes to an end. By my faith, tell me here, or I will put you into wicked confusion. So this is interesting because this is like a common thing that we can trace all the way back to our modern ideas of Bigfoot, right? Mm. He needs to track this wild man to the woods. He has to use guile and subtlety to sort of snatch him, you know, mm-hmm. and, and capture him. He's like the sort of rare prize that you want to get. Um, and then when you finally snap, nab him, he's going to tell you about uh, the future. He's going to be able mm. to prophesy things. Um and, uh, you know, the, he can illuminate the bright gift of holy time, right? Which I think is a very beautiful wow. phrase. But anyway, yeah. so, Gwen uh, Kalan, just to give you a taste, replies, I will tell you seriously, as much as you will ask, you will know from me, except your death and my name. Many will trust in the world, more still in the church. Uh, the former will fall through vice. You will see among the people of the church priests without any justice. Every madman will seek office. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, pretty much a safe bet, but yeah, like, anyway, you'll yeah. see before it comes, the summer and the winter mixed, and you will not know the time in the world, even from the trees and leaf, or from the official feasts. Uh, wow, summer and winter mixed, hmm, uh. then extreme troubles will come. The hair on the head of the young will turn gray with ephemeral trouble. Uh, the world will be so sparse, no one will live to see it manifest. You will see if you live before the time to come. The people of the church disguise. The worst earth will produce the best, and the debauched married best, and a heresy will be published throughout Christianity. You will see and will hold to the greatest sorrow before the earth comes to an end, etc., uh, etc., et you know, like typical uh, end times prophetic stuff. And that's something that yeah. runs through, like, even contemporary uh, Bigfoot stories and ideas. Uh, I was reading about uh, Peter uh, Mathesian. Do you know about mm-hmm. him? No, uh, I don't. he was like a uh, he was like the editor in chief of the Paris Review, uh, but oh, he basically uh-oh. was CIA alert. Exactly, he <laughs> admitted that he was like running it as a front for the CIA. Wow. Um, basically, but he also was a big believer in uh, Bigfoot, um, and uh, he kind of uh, wrote or uh, talked about in his uh, Bigfoot related work that uh he you know this sort of connection between bigfoot and uh the uh end times or the uh apocalypse or the sort of and i think that's kind of a common theme even uh in a lot of other um you know uh, bigfoot related things where there's a sort of sense that you know he's the woods are disappearing right you know like uh, his habitat is in danger. Um, that that's definitely something I've seen before. Is yeah, the you know, sort of ecological like, argument. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, right. So I feel like that aspect 
and that's kind of what he uh that's kind of how he he brought it out i'm trying to uh see if i can dig up uh his remarks right now but i also remember um there was in this one uh interesting book that i read uh about the uh and i mean of course this is i guess really core to the idea of bigfoot as being psychic which he often is depicted as being you know i read a couple of books about the psychic sasquatch or uh, one of my favorite uh especially in terms of what the cover was was the uh <laughs> the sasquatch people and their interdimensional connection which i think wow. uh maybe you've read some of as well and then that uh the you cover know, is definitely striking yes it certainly yeah, is very memorable um yeah so they uh you know in that book of course they're always making predictions uh one of them which i uh you know uh was uh was taken by was uh when you know the the author of the book is i guess in telepathic communication with the bigfoots and uh they prophecy um or sorry with the sasquatch people or the ancient ones Mm -hmm. and uh they say you know uh they write her a note uh which they uh you know she actually pictures and like it's in uh the handwriting of the sasquatch uh (laughs) messy handwriting and uh it says some say men want to kill us we are people not Elohim, not Nephilim. So there's a giant connection, right? So this wow. is kind of somewhat related. Not evil spirit. We are first people, seed of Adam, not of Cain. Another important thing to trace is the connection with Cain, but we'll go back to that. Oh. Learn uh, good the old ways. Time is short. Soon come last war. We all will be safe in woods. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like... Uh, oh. That's, yeah, like another sort of... Thing of like the sort of noble savage there's obviously the big connection between especially in the what the relation to the american sasquatch uh whose name is kind of a, an anglicization of a, a native word um mm-hmm. is the sort of connection with the native americans you know they can kind of stand in for uh these natives in this kind of noble savage sense and there's definitely like a racial component in a lot of like bigfoot stories for sure but yes, yes. anyway so <laughs> there's this whole idea of bigfoot as being able to prophecy um, and I wanted to uh, bring up this story from a very uh, kind of different context, uh, which is this uh, the Sahih Hadith. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so these are the words of the Prophet, which are uh, presumably verified, you know. Um, you can, uh, this is according to Sunnah.com, who says mm-hmm. it's Sahih, so you can pick it up with them if you disagree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, the Prophet allegedly, uh, Salah alayhi wa salam, got on a minbar uh, in the mosque, and he said... Uh, some people among the inhabitants of Palestine traveled by boat in the sea, taking them here and there until it cast them on an island among the islands of the sea. Uh, so there they found a beast uh, clothed, which its hair flowing, like uh, clothed with sort of flowing hair. Like uh, it's bit literally like, uh, you know, then uh, they were with a beast of clothes of hair, uh, clothes of its flowing out hair. Um, okay. And uh, so they asked, like, what are you? Uh, mm. you know, my auntie, uh, and it said, uh, I am al Jasasa, which is, uh, Jasasa is an interesting, uh, designation that it gives itself because for those who heard our Idrisha episode and his famous, uh, idea of, uh, the Sufi as a spy of the heart mm-hmm. that was based on the same, uh, sort of, uh, root, uh, Jis, uh, J-S, uh, uh, so, mm. uh, or Jasin. um, interesting. So, yeah, like, uh, this idea of, well, it's unclear kind of what, uh, I guess, yeah, like, really the main connotation is a sense of spying, so maybe he's, like, an advanced guard, or, like, there's this sense of, uh, like, scoping out, or maybe, like, a hunting, 
uh, beast, you know, a hunter, mm-hmm. uh, you could say. But anyway, um, so they, they said, give us some news, you know, like uh, report to us something. Uh, it said, I shall not give you any news, nor do I want any of your news. But go to the furthest village, for there is someone who will give you news and seek your news. Um, so he's kind of passing the buck in terms of prophecy here. But anyways, mm-hmm. this is what happens. He went to the furthest village, and there was a man fettered with chains. He said, inform me about the spring of Zuhar. We said, it is full and flowing. He said, inform me about Abu Haira. Uh, we said, it is full and flowing. He said, inform me about the date groves of Baisan, which is between Jordan and Palestine. Do they produce food? We said, yes. He said, inform me about the prophet. Has he been sent? We said, yes. He said, inform me how the people came to him. We said, quickly. He leaped up to try to escape. We said, what are you? He said, I am the Dajjal. No. Uh, Yes, so uh, basically this sort of strange creature, which is probably like Dabat al-Ard, like the beast of the earth, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, uh, but, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting depiction of the beast of the earth as being kind of talking, man-like uh, creature. Um, covered in chains, uh, like wrapped well, in chains? Well, he's covered in, in hair. Dajjal is chained. He's oh, just okay, kind of okay. like a, a wanderer almost. And that's another kind of sense of Jasasa in terms of like the hunting, like sort of wandering across the land, like seeking something like, but maybe he's also the, the advanced guard of uh, the Jal in a way, or maybe he's just mm. in the sort of function of, you know, it does call him uh, Daba. So that's like basically the, you know, what the same word that's used for like Daba or, you know, the beast of the earth, uh, which mm-hmm. is the same thing like in the, in the Bible, you know, so I uh, could have that signification or it could just be, yeah, so uh, it's open to interpretation, I suppose, but that's definitely one that comes very readily to mind. But yeah, the, the Jal is the one that's chained up, um, and he's trying to escape because, uh, you know, the, the time of the hour is near, uh, uh. and he's sort of wherever this, this beast is. But anyway, so these are both, like, uh, you know, medieval or, you know, late antique uh, stories of this sort of uh, hairy wild man uh, mm-hmm. and his kind of prophetic capacity and his, his connection uh, with humanity, uh, that, you know, I, I think are interesting kind of set the stage. And of course, this is, it's something that like goes, uh, you know, deep, like this is, there's, there's many, many, uh, stories of this, of this kind, many different stories about wild, uh, beings in the woods, human, like mm-hmm. hairy creatures, uh, you know, going back deep in, into history, you know, you could talk about like satyrs and, and fawns and things like that, you know, yeah. uh, you know, uh, well, I think, I can't remember, but were, were the Lotus Eaters, um, from the Odyssey, were they, yeah, they were from the Odyssey, oh, you, what, were um, they wild, were they wild men, or were they just crazy people eating lotuses? Well, that's, like, the, I mean, the thing about the Lotus Eaters was that they were, like, on drugs, so, like, they yeah. at one time been normal people, but that's, there's also, like, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, like, uh, he's also said to, uh, have, um, you know, like, uh, been transformed into a beast, and, like, there's, of course, famous, uh, stories, uh, in Islam, you know, having to do with, uh, people who were disobedient being turned into apes and things like that, so, mm. uh, there's definitely an idea of, uh, transformation that can happen, you know, that Bigfoot, uh, or, I don't want to say Bigfoot, because, you know, it's not really, like, uh, it's kind of, uh, retroactively applying this concept, but there's yeah. definitely continuities there, and you, like, these sort of wild men, sometimes they're conceived as being, like, a separate race or a hellish or monstrous race that just exists out there and they're inherently monstrous. Sometimes it's maybe a transformation that happens and uh, they run the sort of continuity on the spectrum between man and animal, you know, and Mm. that's kind of what I think is uh, very uh, basic to these stories all the time is the idea that, 
you know, the idea of the uncertainty and the instability between humanity and animality. Something you can kind of say in our dolphin episode as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, the sort of discomfort that comes from uh, the disruption of stable categories of personhood or humanity. I think that's kind of uh, the sort of uh, liminal space where uh, Bigfoot and maybe some of his predecessors uh, exist. Yes. Um, um, yeah. I, I, uh, if I can just uh, throw out like a scientific question, um, has anybody made the connection between the sort of wild men stories and Neanderthals or associated peoples in sort of far back human history? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like prehistory, basically, um, where because I mean, it does sound that they have hair all over their body. In some cases, not all of these accounts seem to be that they are very tall, necessarily. Um, yeah. The, the allegations of things that were seen in Vietnam, for example, in Laos and Cambodia, which we'll get to um, in a little bit, uh, seem to be more like like five feet tall. Um, yeah, there's definitely reports also of, like, little wild men and things like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, an old thing. Like, even I remember, like, uh, there's a very popular idea about, like, fairies being kind of, like, a memory of, like, a smaller race of uh, peoples that were kind of wiped out. And that's... I definitely heard that theory floated. One of the, uh, you know... Um, uh, essays I read about it was uh, called uh, Disappearing Wild Men. It's in a book called uh, Anthropology of Extinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so, it, and he basically posited that there probably was some connection between these ideas of like, you know, and that's often how they're like uh, abominable snowman type <laughs> creatures are seen today as being like relic hominids, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like that they're like uh, a lot of people think Bigfoot is like gigantopithecus or something you know mm-hmm. uh or the, or i i think it maybe i've heard before like the missing link yeah something like that yeah uh, which is kind of fueled maybe some of the passion towards you know capturing him or finding yeah, him and that's the main sort of scientific uh idea so that's like that's an interesting thing with the uh bigfoot stuff is that um bigfoot like is in that uh, Marjorie Halpin, who wrote a little bit about this and was kind of the original uh, Bigfoot girl, uh, you know, mm-hmm. she, um, I guess she was uh, quoting someone else, uh, but I forget who, but, uh, you know, uh, she wrote a book about a man like monsters, uh, or she edited a volume about man like monsters through history, and uh, she uh, used this phrase called like the goblin universe, you know. And uh, Shay, mm-hmm. I think, also even pointed out to this tension where a lot of these sort of Bigfoot researchers, both amateur and professional, their goal is almost to make Bigfoot into like the scientific thing where it's, you know, becomes a legitimate area of research um, mm-hmm. and brings it out of this sort of goblin liminal dimension. But, uh, you know, that is a lot of the time a kind of very important component of how these things function. And it's almost like the struggle to legitimize it, uh, it almost seems like doomed to fail or kind of part of uh the weird or the strange uh aura around all this stuff and i i feel like it won't ever be successful i feel like there's something insofar like as you can call this like a real phenomenon uh i feel like uh i don't know the whole idea of like relic hominids is you know maybe there's something to that in terms of like the perpetuation of this I mean, maybe, like, uh, Bigfoot is, like, the ghost of some relic hominid or something well, like that. It, it you know? did make like, me think about uh, the, in the, the Soviet parapsychology episode, um, 
the the sort of the part at the end about energetic ghosts being sort of like an imprint of a memory, like an energetic imprint of a memory. And so if you did have <clears throat> like especially in uh, undisturbed forest areas, let's say, um, where people maybe would have lived on like the same plane, you know, if we're adopting those rules, um, perhaps, you know, seeing a Bigfoot wandering around is just like the memory of a Neanderthal hunter from 40,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and definitely. Like, uh, the idea of the Neanderthal is, and I think that even in like the Almasti yes. uh, stories or like in Russia, the connection with the Neanderthal was made more strongly in yes. America. They often had to say like it's gigantopithecus or something else, but in Russia, a lot of time they would try to say Neanderthal. Yeah, um, and know, they have or, found a lot of De Denisovan uh, skeletons in, I think, Siberia and in Central Asia um, mm -hmm. over the last 20 years or so. So there was at least, um, and yeah, Neanderthals were kind of all around Northern Europe and probably the, the Northern Eurasian plains and in the Caucasus and things like that. Um, so it, it's, it's not totally, and a lot of those areas were quite remote so it's, it's not totally, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense. It fits in a way, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's possible, uh, you know, and I think it's more possible in some places, uh, you know, more than others. This is what uh, Gregory Fourth says in that uh, essay that I mentioned, Disappearing Wild Men. Uh, mm -hmm. which, uh, this, uh, this title is also a subtitle, but um, it's in this book, uh, Anthropology of Extinction. At least it's printed there. It might be printed elsewhere, too. But anyway, so he says, although not clearly universal in the same way as spirits the wild man is nonetheless a widespread representation that is not specific to a single cultural tradition or a kind of or kind of social system and cannot readily be explained as an imaginary social construct or a special cultural symbolism stories of wild men including the legend of their destruction and extinction reflect an equally widespread human attitude towards other zoological kinds and especially uh, to creatures that appear hominoid but not quite human and which may therefore challenge the conceptual boundary of humanity and animality no oh, yeah like as we mentioned mm -hmm. regularly revealing themes of capture confinement and extermination just like in the sort of story that we talked about mm -hmm. uh scenarios such as the one depicted in the Florinese story of the ebu gogo he is really all about connecting this uh you know ebu gogo to uh you know uh sort of small relic hominoids but mm -hmm. uh like comparable traditions from other parts of southeast asia and elsewhere revealed the idea if not always the reality of a deliberate extermination of entire groups is not a recent invention of modern or modernizing societies. Mm -hmm. It might even be a significant factor of human evolution. Uh, yeah, he's basically referring to the idea that human beings, like, you know, wiped out other I, genes. I've always been fascinated yeah. by that hypothesis that the reason the Neanderthals and the Denisovans aren't around anymore is because that was our first genocide. Yeah. Uh, basically. Yeah, that's a pretty... Well, that's an hypothesis that does have some cachet. Uh but anyway, yeah, he just says, if there is an archetype to which various wildman images respond, one of its main components appears to be exclusion, persecution, and extirpation leading to extinction, either as the fate of the wild man or as an ex aspect of relations with humans. Um, so, you know, that's a point that, that, that he makes. Um, I remember I put it in the show notes uh, prematurely because I figured it would come up, but uh, I found in a book, and now I don't even remember where it was, but it was a petroglyph uh, attributed to the Bushmen of South Africa, which is described by H.C. Woodhouse in uh, 1979 as depicting a gray-style bushman wielding weapons, confronting robust, perhaps hair-covered men of the early race. And you can really see how there's these big, sort of thick, 
uh, man-like beasts fighting these, uh, you know, sort of thinner, uh, less stocky tool users um, <laughs> in this kind of cave painting. Yeah, you can you can look mm-hmm. it up. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, man of the early race. So yeah, there's definitely this idea of, um, you know, and that's something that's very consistent in a lot of these stories that they are in some way a predecessor of humanity or, you know, I mean, they are basically like extremely human-like uh in every way they're just hairy hairy people maybe big hairy people with ju- with big feet i guess but yeah, uh, I mean, a the, lot of the, time you know they usually very i mean i guess they're i'm not as familiar with the ideas that they're like telepathic or <laughs> things like that but uh i i don't know i mean it, would you say the preponderance of sort of um bigfoot wild man legends how are they able to speak um it really depends. That's the yeah. thing. Like it really, that's like one of the big debates because yeah, this, and that's kind of like the crux of a lot of this stuff. I guess it is. It's is like, what, are they are more, they human or I, are I they think animal? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The uncertainty over whether or not this is sort of like a relative of a gorilla or relative of man, uh, yeah. gets very fraught. And, um, yeah, yeah there's, there's a, yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing that I, I want to bring up from actually, uh, an essay by Marjorie Halpin, who I mentioned, um, who, she worked on uh, the t- Simshian uh, people. I hope, again, I'm saying that right, but uh, yes. There's going to uh, be a lot of ancient names that we are yeah, uh, probably uh, going to struggle with or in this indigenous episode. names, yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, Sasquatch itself is like a mangled uh, name. It's like a Sasquatch or something. It's mm-hmm. like the actual, but uh, anyway, uh, or Sasquatch, uh, uh, or Quest. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and she talks about like uh, a quality uh, that these uh, those these people sort of used or, or concept that they had uh, of uh, bit loss, um, and uh, basically that's the i the sort of ability or the man likeness of an animal or sort of the the mimicry mm-hmm. capability, uh, and uh, yeah. Um, I think we'll table that up until like after we talk about some of the uh, well. No, maybe it's good to to talk about this now, and we'll just follow uh, the sort of tangent, and we can do uh, the Cold War like Yeti stuff uh, sure. afterwards. But uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, she edited this volume called "Man Like Monsters on Trial," and uh, she, you know, which is basically all about Sasquatch, and it's interesting because it brings together. Uh, and I think she co-edited it with uh, Grover Krantz, or he was involved somehow, mm-hmm. um, who was, like, a very big uh, Bigfoot person. Um, and uh, you know, he was one of the most, like, uh, serious Bigfoot academics. And it kind of, uh, you know, well, he had problems. Like, you know, he didn't read enough of the, like, uh, the current scholarship in his field, but his mm-hmm. research kind of uh, suffered, and he kind of maybe blamed uh, the fact that he was into Bigfoot for derailing his career a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, so it's similar to that. But anyway, so yeah, uh, he also worked on this. Uh, but she wrote a very interesting article um, called uh, The Tim Shan Monkey Mask and Sasquatch, uh, where she talks about uh, this quality of Bilwas, um, which is sort of the... Um, or Bawis, uh, I've been saying it wrong, but, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a Bawis, uh, category. Um, and, uh, yeah, Monkey and Sasquatch are, like, kind of included in this, uh, but a big, uh, probably the biggest, uh, for them, and the, the Timshan, uh, people, or the Simshan, uh, people, their, uh, biggest, uh, sort of, uh, representative of this, or the, the one that they, uh, turn to a lot of the time is the, uh, the Otter, 
uh, or the land otter. Um, land otter, okay. Yeah, prior, uh, she writes, prior to the European introduction of the monkey, the land otter was probably perceived as the most human-like animal in the Simshian environment. It is also anthropomorphized by non-Indians, who consistently describe it in terms of human qualities. Of course, you know, otters, they're very cute. Uh, If an otter can't, uh, a naturalist, for example, writes as follows. If an otter can't have fun doing something, it simply won't do it. Uh, This might be an exaggeration, but only a slight one. For the otter seems to make light of nearly everything it does, and is without doubt the most fun-loving of all native wildlife. Whether traveling, (laughs) feeding, or merely enjoying the family group, it finds time for fun and games. The otter seems to feel that life is just too wonderful to be overly concerned about anything, even things that most wildlife consider extremely serious business, such as eating. Um, so yeah, you know, the, uh, that uh, is true. That is true. If you've ever been Um, to pier Pier 39 and seen those sea lions, uh, they, they're just chilling 24 seven. Well, yeah. I mean, sea lions are are different, but yeah, I mean, they are just chilling there. I mean, I love those sea lions, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, otters are adorable. Um, but anyway, there's actually kind (laughs) of like a, uh, dark or malevolent, uh, uh, aspect to the otters in this culture, which is interesting because we think of them as being like these adorable, like fun loving creatures, you know, but because they have this sort of human like quality, um, they, there's actually kind of a malevolence attached to them and like a trickery, uh, component. So, uh, and they can sort of drive you insane. Um, whether we consider the combined attributes of both land and sea otters or land otters alone, we are certainly dealing with an animal having the Bawis ability to create a perceptual bridge uniting man and animal. In Simshan belief, land otters have the power to transform themselves into simulacra of humans and to possess or take away the minds of those who encounter them and yield to their dangerous enticements. Whereas only one without fault could see wealth woman and her child, another sort of figure with this ability. It seems that it was expressly those with false faults who were most likely to see the land otter people. Uh, one of the people who are most, uh, vulnerable or people who uh it's it, it, there's a connection with incest actually where mm. uh you know if you're in the forest kind of thinking of a sexual partner in some way the otter can take on uh this uh you know uh shape or they can kind of uh metamorphose themselves into uh this being uh, she says that um uh these stories a lot of time explore the dangers inhering in the close brother-sister relationship in a matrilineal local system in which a man's sister's son is a successor. So uh, that creates, like, problems. Like, you know, were a man to enter into a direct incestuous relationship with his sister in order to father his own heir, death would result to the village as well as to the sister and her son. Uh, this is told in kind of these sort of stories of... Uh, the seduction by these uh, Ba'wis beings. So mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the time they have, like, a, if you have these sort of faults or uh, these failings, they, they uh, you know, you're vulnerable to them. Uh, she writes, Ordinary humans are vulnerable to land otter possession on the sea when they have capsized and are in danger of drowning, and on land when they are in the forest thinking of a sexual partner. Possession is manifested by insanity, which, if not cured by a shaman, leads to death. Shamans can survive land otter possession after which they call upon the power of the animal, either by song or by returning into a possessed state in order to cure illness and perform other shamanic feats, such as fire walking. The belief wow. in the vulnerability of those who are drowning to land otter possession might derive from the condition of hypothermia caused by the rapid loss of body heat and cold water. This is like an interesting point because this kind of deals with some of the 
like uh, the missing 411 stuff that we might talk about later if we have time. Mm -hmm. But uh, according to medical specialists, hypothermia permits expansion of the short and unstable state observed just before death. Its symptoms include confusion and defective thinking, which can manifest in behavior considered insane in other contexts. For example, an acquaintance of mine who suffered from hypothermia while skiing took off her clothes and began running barefoot through the snow, experiencing subjective feelings of heat and great energy. It seems likely that someone in such a confused state might also readily confuse a human-seeming otter with a real human, or more generally, that hypothermic confusion due to cold water exposure was equated with other confusions of, quote, insane behavior resulting from other causes. Um, so yeah, she says the danger of thinking a sexually desired person of a sexually desired person while alone in the woods is that it gives the land otter an opportunity to take that person's place in one's mind, thereby manifesting in a human form. The sexual lure of land otter people is mentioned as an explicit danger. When Chief Mountain of the Niska was becoming a shaman, he was approached by a beautiful girl who wanted to have intercourse with him. She gave him a power song and taught him how to control fire. When she left, he saw that she had a land otter tail. He later danced in her mask. Someone from Kitzkatla told John Dunn that once an otter who appears as a sexually enticing person embraces a human, they go into you and straight to your brain and gnaw away at it so that you become mindless and aware otter too. You don't live too long after that happens to you. You start acting crazy. Then you get sick and die. Um, so, yeah, there's, a, there's another wow. story of a man who vowed he would never succumb to the land otters. Um, when in a canoe in which the man is traveling with his sister capsizes, she drowns and he swims ashore. The land otters transform themselves into people and approach another canoe. But when the man throws their paddles into the fire, thereby turning the paddles into minks, the land otter people disappear and their canoe transforms into a driftwood log. He also refuses to yield to the blandishments of a land otter woman who offers him food, which would accomplish his transformation into one of them should he eat it. Then he recognizes the voice of his dead sister's ghost. I ought not to be afraid of my own sister, he says to himself, and he accepts the harmless food she offers. After a month, he is rescued. Uh, so uh, Halpin says this myth explicitly uh, disavows that it is about brother sister incest um, although the situation leads us uh, to suspect that this is the theme um, so uh, you know she's uh, her ghosts will be taken by the otters if she drowns the sister that is um, and the malevolence of the land eyes on the consequence of brother sister incest then but represents something even more dangerous the interchangeability of offerings of food and sex suggests that the category of this danger includes but is even more basic than misplaced or inappropriate sexual relationships. Since the two basic requirements of life are food and procreation, illusory substitutions of which are offered by the death-bringing otters, this danger appears to be one of an absolutely fundamental challenge to human existence. Um, so, yeah. Uh, wow, land otters okay. have this Bawi's ability, you know, yeah. Um, I, <clears throat> I had no idea that otters were had such a loaded... Um, Kind of, or people's perceptions of them were so loaded. Um, uh, yeah, well, in this one uh, culture, I guess they are, and they're sort of that that aspect of them, uh, the bawis uh, that they have, which is sort of uh, this liminality between human and animal, is what um, makes them threatening. It makes them threatening, and uh, yeah, uh, and the Sasquatch also sort of falls in this. Uh, in this uh, category, Halpin uh, uh, again says, uh, in Tsimshian thought, then Sasquatch is an animal whose resemblance to human beings is close enough to confuse the boundary between animals and humans. It is as real as a monkey, but also as real as wealth woman who assumes different shapes. 
Thus, the Simshan cannot answer the question of whether the Sasquatch is real as we pose the question. Indeed, they do not perceive its resemblance to humans in the same way that North American Sasquatch witnesses do. While each Bawis animal has some perceptual quality which, quote, appears human, the essence of Bawis is that it is found throughout nature, although most malevolently concentrated on the land otters. It is found wherever man catches a glimpse of himself in nature, including in his own birth and death. Um, wow. Yeah, so, I guess, uh, yeah. Right. And, the, the, and where, where was this, uh, this culture that had these legends? Um, it's in uh, Canada, I think. Where oh, exactly okay. uh, is it located? Uh, the Pacific Northwest Coast, uh, mostly in coastal British Columbia and far southern Alaska. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I'm just looking, you know, very basically over the Wikipedia page for otters right now. And it turns <laughs> out this is kind of like, we might have to do a whole otter episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, there is a kind of transcultural um sort of history of uh, otters being mythologized in a kind of sinister fashion. I guess in Japan, they're called uh, Kawaso. And uh, during, they basically, they typically fool humans in the same way as foxes. Um, and they, uh, <clears throat> they shit, sometimes they shape shift into beautiful women or children wearing checker patterned clothing. And they say cryptic things. Um, there are darker stories such as one from Kaga province in which an otter that lives in the castle's moat shapeshifts into a woman, invites males, and then kills and eats them. Um, during the Edo period, uh, let's see, there are tales about strange occurrences like otters that shapeshift into beautiful women and kill men. In the Sugaro region, they're said to possess humans. Uh, it is said that those possessed by otters lose their stamina as if their soul has been extracted. They are also said to shapeshift into severed heads and get caught in fishing nets. Um, uh, really, yeah, a lot of this is about they shapeshift into beautiful women and then fool people and then kill yeah. them. Well, that's also an aspect of Bigfoot lore, like even just in, uh, you know, normal like U.S. and North American like pop culture. Like, I mean, we had that whole dude, like I think there was like some congressman or whatever who was like uh, looking up Bigfoot erotica or whatever. Oh, or yeah. Or maybe he hadn't even I written it. I forget I exactly what it that. was. I yeah, know that there's yeah. definitely like, there's de definitely an erotic like dimension uh, a Virginia candidate called Bigfoot Erotica Devotee wins congressional race. Uh, Denver Riggleman, labeled a Bigfoot Erotica Devotee. Uh, he co-authored the book titled The Mating Habits of Bigfoot and Why Women Want Him, which was written as a running joke with his military friends. With his, Interesting. Mil with his military, military friends. friends. Uh, 
Uh, but anyway, yeah. Okay. So there's definitely a sexual aspect uh, to Bigfoot as well. Uh, Halpin uh, draws like a whole connection between uh, this uh, type of stuff she talks about. Uh, she says, um, uh, Simshian beliefs about, uh, um, oh, well, maybe it's better to start earlier uh, in this paragraph because this kind of touches on something that we were talking about before. Um, North Americans who believe in Sasquatch want very strongly to have his existence validated and explained by the scientific establishment. Indeed, they often berate scientists for ignoring the creature and not mounting scientific expeditions in search of it. There is a need for consensus, which is perhaps to be expected in a democratic society which exalts conformity, but this need also reveals the strong control that science holds over our collective reality. It is popularly believed that Sasquatch will not exist until scientists say that it does. Since, mm. however, there is no category in Western culture for creatures who mediate the animal-human realms, scientists have no category for the Sasquatch to exist in. Those few scientists who do accept it tend to place it in a category of a human predecessor, which somehow managed to survive. Finally, Tsimshian beliefs about Biowis can be interpreted as expressing aspects of themselves they normally deny but cannot eradicate. If the Sasquatch is the same for us, if it is our mirror, it is a rather sorry picture we find of a large and hairy beast with big feet who smells absolutely terrible. Although I do feel that there's also kind of like a, a desire uh, or there's positive aspects of it as well. You know, he just wants mm -hmm. to be left alone. He's sort of sage. You know, he has telepathic abilities maybe. But uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, there, there's kind of a, a weird... Um yeah, like a Rambo in the wilderness, like maybe a defector from the, you know, First Earth Battalion who has just grown out all his <laughs> hair and can do ESP and, you know, is totally can survive in a wilderness uh, perfectly and just yeah. wants to be left alone. That old libertarian dream. Right. Uh, you know, Another like, aspect of Bawis I remember from this essay, uh, I forget if it's ascribed to otters, but. Uh, one of the sort of spooky abilities that such uh, trickster beings have is they can sort of mimic uh, the sounds of, uh, you know, babies crying or whatever. Yeah, um, hmm. it's, uh, they, they write, uh, the Gixcon now make a distinction between the bird Wadmil and the woman Wadmil uh, with her crying baby. Uh, they suggest that in early times such distinction was made. The perceptual similarity of the bird's voice to a baby's cry, in other words, the ability of the bird to imitate a human, was evidence of an anomalous creature, another existence which mediated the animal uh, and human categories of being. The existence of a human attribute in nature, already a perceptual bridge uniting man and animal, was conceptualized as an anomalous being uh, that, uh, like an anomalous being containing that unity, a concrete being which could be encountered by man himself in the woods or on the ocean when away from human settlement. Um, it was a dangerous encounter since it was an encounter with power, but if a man conducted himself properly, he could acquire some of that power and thereby acquire wealth. Uh, just like if you capture Bigfoot, you'll be rich and famous. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, like, uh, that is another thing that uh, reminds me, uh, if we do get to the missing 411 stuff, that's another common thing where people will be hearing screams in the woods, you know, and they won't be sure if it's these missing kids or whatever or animals or uh things like that and there's uh, even in the sort of retelling and the litigation of the stories after the fact in kind of the the research and the scrambling around uh there's debate over like you know who these screams belong to whether animals or humans and that i think kind of is part of the whole like uh bigfoot but not bigfoot aura of that but again we'll mm -hmm. uh we'll deal with that later um but yeah yeah uh kind of on this uh line I remembered as I was sort of researching this something that I think is uh, also interesting. It's this uh, 
book uh, that I had read a while ago called uh, Muslims Through Discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's about uh, basically the book is about kind of the uh, tension between traditionalists uh, who are and uh, like modernists in uh, Gayo uh, or Indonesian uh, Muslim culture like sort of the sort of reformist movement that wants to kind of standardize everything and, uh, you know, kind of purge any uh, localisms or, uh, you know, Indonesian aspects of uh, these beliefs. Sure. Um, but, uh, and, you know, the sort of more uh, uh, older ideas and the sort of uh, more local practices of Islam. Um, but they, uh, in the description of these beliefs that Bowen gives, uh, there's a figure uh, that is very interesting called, uh, the old hunter, uh, mm-hmm. that comes up, uh, that I find to be, uh, very interesting. Uh, let me, uh, read from his, uh, Muslims through discourse because it's, uh, something that I think is, uh, super interesting. Yeah. He talks about how, uh, the afterbirth, like after a person is born is buried in the woods. So like, uh, they bury this afterbirth in the woods and it can connect you with the elements or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And you have all sorts of companions uh, that can kind of help you to uh, navigate the world that come out of this. Yeah, here we go. He talks about the, he says, the embodiment pathway, which is basically this act of doing this, uh, sort of burying uh, the uh, afterbirth and to create this sort of connection stretches from the individual's uh, spiritual elements to the elements in the external world. It is open-ended, his spiritual elements being like the different parts of his, his afterbirth, like the descent and stuff, mm-hmm. and that it can be extended to uh, reach other powerful spirit foursomes. Uh, you know, they had divided the afterbirth into four uh, components, like, uh, you know, the placenta and uh, the amniotic fluid, the umbilical cord, and the darker fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can also connect you with, you know, the four elements like air, fire, earth, and water. Okay. Um, yeah, this is useful in two distinct ways. It provides, uh, an external material foundation for spiritual entities as when Inan Saga reminded the vital force that it had a secure home. Uh, this is a ritual he described earlier. And it also provides a channel for communication with the Lords of the elements. As we will see, uh, in subsequent chapters, healers rely on their own and their patients links to the environment to expel harmful spirits as do rice ritual specialists when repairing damage to crops. The embodiment pathway provides a grounding for human well-being communication. It explains how it is that humans are spiritual and connected to God and Muhammad, and yet also corporeal, able to affect the physical world. The empowerment pathway then provides the means for converting inner, or batin reality, into an instrument for the manipulation of the outer, uh, lahir, lahir, uh, I guess in Indonesian it's lahir, uh, world. The four images of God, Muhammad, black and white, not only form a spiritual substratum in each individual, they can also be constructed into a spirit agent, the single companion mentioned by Inen Saga in her spell uh, earlier. The single companion guards the boundary of the body against harmful spirits, against those who connive and hate. Travelers often invoke it to stand guard while they are sleeping. The single companion is visible as the shadow, which in this context is called the black boy. Uh, you know, we've talked kind of about some of the stuff in the past. The shadow extends the chain of creation out of the body and thus can be called on to mediate between the body and the external world. Mm-hmm. One can read one's fortune from the state of the shadow or send the shadow to do one's bidding. Just as the four images contain the possibility of both good and bad, the single companion in the shadow can be called on to perform good or evil as personal guardians or as car- uh, carriers of black magic. The shadow, in turn, has a Lahir exoteric or a Zahir counterpart 
in a human-like spirit, uh, the Old Hunter, who lives in the hills. In some accounts, the Old Hunter is a spirit that descends from Cain. In others, it is an ordinary person who wandered up from the agricultural area to the hills and remained there. In still others, it grew out of Adam's afterbirth. In each case, it is a spiritual agent connected by ties of siblingship to each human and able to reward success or failure in the hunt. Hunters can call on it for assistance because of the connection between the shadow and the old hunter. Some healers also rely on this connection, appealing to the old hunter to assist them in expelling spirits. The old hunter is in turn embodied in the afterbirth, thus the burial of the afterbirth in the woods, the hunter's domain. Both the old hunter and the afterbirth are considered to be the sibling of the individual. So basically, hmm. you know, this old hunter uh, is in the stone, like, you know, he lives in the woods, he has a domain of the wilderness, he can help you, like, in the hunt. Uh, he's sort kind of, of like, like this a hairy yeah, being. Yeah. Guardian um, angel, but also real. He ex- yeah, and he. Corporeal. Yeah, it's uh, the shadow, like, as a mediation between. It's all about the mediation yeah. between these worlds. That's why they kind of bury the afterbirth in the wilderness to create yes. this sort of connection or sympathetic link between the human like an being um, almost and like an forces. umbilical spiritual yeah. connection. Exactly, that's exactly what it is yeah. uh, to create that connection. Um, mm. And in the same way that the old hunter is considered to be the sibling of the person, you know, uh, so is the afterbirth. And this whole idea of siblingship. I feel like, you know, not to get too, like, comparative symbology and everything, that is very similar to the idea of Bigfoot. Uh, you know, he's, like, the... In fact, I was reading that, like, uh, the Cherokee name for Sasquatch is, mm-hmm. like, an elder brother or something. Really? Uh, mm. You know, and obviously, like, uh, I think that one of the scientific names people throw out for Bigfoot is Homo sapiens cognitans or something, like, or cognitans, like, similar mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, mm. and so just very, yeah, uh, so this whole idea of, like, closeness, brotherhood, um, it has a certain parallel. But, yeah, it, of course, wow. it's domain being in the woods. Um, it's sort of, it has a certain malevolent aspect. And there's also the link to Cain, which, of course, is a thing, yeah. like, in, in Mormonism, that's, like, the Mormon reading of Bigfoot, that Bigfoot is uh, Cain. The child uh, is the, the children of Cain? Or, well, literally is Cain. Um, oh, he's just been wandering for all these years in America? Um, yeah, actually, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, Matthew Bowman uh, wrote a uh, essay called A Mormon Bigfoot, uh, <laughs> which is exactly on this cane uh, and the conception of evil in LDS folklore. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, he actually gives a story. Um, Apostle uh, David W. Patton claimed he saw Cain in the spring of 1835. Um, he was serving a mission in Tennessee and staying with the family of Abraham O. Smoot, a future stake president and mayor of Salt Lake City in Provo. Three and a half years later, uh, in October 1838, he was killed at the Battle of Crooked River in Missouri. A 1900 biography reprinted a letter Smoot sent to Joseph F. Smith in uh, 1893, reporting Patton's claim that while riding his mule back to Smoot's home, he, uh, quote, met with a very remarkable personage who had represented himself as being Cain and who had murdered his brother, Abel. I suddenly noticed a very strange personage walking beside me for about two miles. His head was uh, about even with my shoulders as I sat in my saddle. He wore no clothing but was covered with hair. His skin was very dark. He said that he had no home, that he was a wanderer in the earth. He said that he was a very miserable creature, that he had earnestly sought death, but that he could not die, and his mission was to destroy the souls of men. I rebuked him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by virtue of the holy priesthood and commanded him to go hence and he immediately departed out of my sight. 
Uh, um, okay, hold up. Yeah. Like, uh, not to be too hard on the Mormons here as we go through all kinds of different folklore, but wait, let's just break down the facts here. So, uh, uh, Cain, who was a Bigfoot, showed up walking alongside him for while he was riding on a mule for a distance mm-hmm. of two miles, which, like, how long do you think it would take for a mule to go two miles? Like, hours? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, probably, like, at least know, an, like hour. an hour. Yeah, uh, at least an hour. Does it take an hour to walk a mile? Yeah. Not really. Uh, well, I mean, I would say it, we're talking about, like, this is not, like, a momentary encounter. This is not, like, five minutes with, with Kane Bigfoot. Uh, this is at least you know, 30 <laughs> minutes speed of mule uh okay, yeah, yeah well you know maybe he was kind of in the distance and he was gradually approaching and he was like you know like what your standard bigfoot encounter you know like okay what is that? okay you know, i guess like, i'm uh, thinking you know back riding through the wilderness and stuff and like rural roads it's not like they like, were hanging out together and like talk you know i guess they did exchange well some they words, did they, also um also this 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 cane bigfoot speaks english uh yeah well maybe he learned english you know uh in the 1830s? Or maybe he spoke to him tele- telepathically. I wish he would specify if he spoke to him telepathically, because then at least we'd have something to go off of. But right now, yeah. I mean, I think he if he started he speaking in yeah. ancient Hebrew or something, then maybe, yeah. uh, I mean, Cain is even older than that. You know, if he's speaking in some forgotten tongue, uh, mm-hmm. it seems like like where, I guess Cain, he'd be almost like a vampire. He'd be thousands of years old. He'd probably be pretty smart. I don't know, or unless he uh, yeah. just wanders I mean, I around like he in the wilderness. Yeah, I could probably pick up English. I mean, who knows when you learn English? I mean, since he's been here since, yeah, like literally almost the dawn of humanity. I feel like it's feasible that he would know how to speak English. I don't think that's the problem I have with the story, <laughs> if anything. Uh, yeah, apparently also uh, E. Wesley Smith also had an encounter with Kane uh, where um, they were dedicating a temple, I guess, uh, in 1921 uh, at the mm-hmm. Hawaii Mission. Oh. And uh, according to his own account... Okay, wait a minute. Okay, sorry. I mean, well, I'll address that in a minute. Uh, what, so Bigfoot can swim? Like, did he stow <laughs> away on a ship? Ugh, anyways. Maybe he um, walked across the bottom of the ocean. I don't know. I mean, he can't uh, die, so... Uh, yeah, I but, you know, funnily t- enough, that is something that I encountered in other Bigfoot material, the idea that Bigfoot can't be killed. Uh, huh. So, like, you know, this does kind of come... That up, would at least like, explain why we never found a Bigfoot skeleton or fossils or anything like that. There's definitely got to be some reason why there are no Bigfoot fossils or Bigfoot bones. Uh, yes. You know. Um, That's a huge, huge uh, gaping hole in the, yeah. the kind of overall Bigfoot narrative. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. And it would be hard even for, you know... Uh, I mean, I guess, like, there are probably some animals whose remains are, like, rarely found in general, but, like... It would be hard even for, like, if there were a government cover-up, which is certainly something that uh, is now, you know, widely... I mean, it would it would be necessary there would be government cover-up at this point because with all the satellites and everything, like, the government, if Bigfoot were out there and, like, perceptible by normal means, like, and we're just a normal animal, then, like, we like the government would know. Uh, and they would have to be involved in a cover-up. So when uh-huh. you combine that with maybe, you know, and I feel like in order for it to even be remotely feasible, also Bigfoot itself would have to be covering up its own existence. So between those two yeah. things, like, you know, it would be hard to find him, but still probably not enough that there would not be any bones or fossils found. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like, We're I talking mean, that, about thousands of years. Of... Yeah, with Bigfoot being an intelligent animal, maybe trying to hide itself and the government trying to hide its existence, that would be a lot. But I still don't know if that's sufficient to really 
like hide like stop a bigfoot from being recovered like or yes. you know found uh exactly. so yeah, that is getting pretty dicey. But yeah, uh, this dude, E. Wesley Smith, said that while he was in Hawaii, a man came to the door. He was tall enough to have to stoop to enter. His eyes were very protruding and rather wild looking. His fingernails were thick and long. He presented a rather unkempt appearance and wore no clothing at all. There suddenly appeared in uh, Smith's, or, you know, he wrote my, of course, right hand, a light which had the size and appearance of a dagger. A voice said, this is your priesthood. He commanded the person in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to depart. Immediately when the light appeared, the person stopped. And on being commanded to leave, he backed at the door. So, uh, yeah. So, okay, so this Bigfoot is a Mormon and is like a messenger from God. No, uh, God, another voice, like, spoke to him and said, this is your priesthood. Um, and, uh, yeah, a voice said that. So that was God. Oh, this okay. I thought, Cain, okay. And a dagger appeared in his hands. And uh, that represented his priesthood, and then he used that to send the entity away. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I see, I see. So Cain was, it was like a manifestation of, like, the evil forces in the world, and God was... Yeah, and he was given gave a him dagger the, the to light sword. Uh, yes, yeah, lightsaber. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, and uh, this essay goes into how, like, the story, like, or the idea of, Big, of Cain, uh, you know, wandering in the wilderness kind of transforms over time. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, uh, and how the, uh, you know, more contemporary Bigfoot lore kind of gets grafted onto this, but it sort of remains, uh, it still retains its Mormon flavor a lot of the time. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting essay, but those are just some, some tidbits of, of encounters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do, do you want to say just, uh, cause I actually don't know, like, what is the actual etymology of the term Bigfoot and when did that come about? Okay. It's I assume it's more modern. Yeah. It's interesting because the term Bigfoot, I think was originally applied to bears and that's a big thing because Bigfoot and bears have like a very close relationship and that like a lot of the time what people think uh, is mostly responsible for Bigfoot sightings are misidentified bears. Yes. So uh, yes. it doesn't help the case that uh, originally, like, the name Bigfoot was often, like, a nickname for bears. Mm. Uh, you know, like, if there was a big bear in the area, you know, he would sometimes get the name Bigfoot. Um, okay. Okay. And uh, I think that there actually was, um, yeah, like, uh, according to Wikipedia... Uh, like, I'm just reading this now, um, in the late, uh, oh yeah, well there's also, um, Spotted Elk, who was called Chief Bigfoot. Wow, that's mm. another wrinkle too, because Ooh. in a lot of early Bigfoot reports, like, or things that you could call Bigfoot reports, where they see, like, a hairy naked man who's, like, a big giant, yeah. they're just called, like, oh, we saw this big Indian, you know, uh-huh. uh, yeah. and they don't call it, like, a monster or a creature, they call it, like, a native. Uh-huh. Uh, in the same way that, uh, one story I'll never forget is that, uh, like, uh, there was some kind of, like, a Carthaginian or Roman explorer who first, uh, described, I guess, gorillas, and, uh-huh. uh, that's the origin of the term, uh, uh, the origin of the term gorilla comes from his, he used it, uh, he called it the tribe. Oh, the I, I think I remember yeah. reading this in, like, Latin class or something, like, back yeah, in the day, like, he basically thought that they were like people he was exactly like, these yeah people. he thought they yeah, were he... people who didn't like speak latin so yeah they exactly they were, just like a, they were just a rough looking tribe or whatever you know uh-huh. uh, yeah. so and i guess there's other instances of that too people just seeing apes or whatever and being like oh this is a weird tribe like mm-hmm. you know uh but 
anyway, yeah, so, uh, I guess that was uh, another aspect that there was, uh, you know, Spotted Elk being called Chief Bigfoot, um, Mm -hmm. and, but yeah, uh, this is what I had recalled, uh, that, um, they were the namesake for two fabled bears in the West. In the late 19th and early 20th century, at least two enormous marauding grizzly bears were noted in the press and nicknamed Bigfoot. This mm. may have been inspired the common name of the ape creature and had been a matter of confusion in early stories. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, and the name actually became widespread as a reference to Sasquatch after a photo of bulldozer operator uh, Jerry Crew holding a cast of a track was spread by wire service in 1958. So, so Sasquatch came into popular parlance. Uh, no, 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 no. Bigfoot, Bigfoot definitely came was into... before that. Sasquatch came into popular parlance uh, before, like, uh, you know, uh, really after the Patterson-Gimlin film. But it was used. It wasn't popular, but it was used. Um, okay. Like, uh, people had sort of used it, but then it was, like, kind of Bigfoot people who sort of were like, oh, you know, we should use Sasquatch because it's a less like goofy term uh, yeah and bigfoot but, is admittedly an extremely wacky term and kind of hard yeah. to take seriously absolutely yeah and also the way that it's used it's kind of like there's one thing called bigfoot you know they were trying to think oh it's a species you know so like when people are just saying like what did bigfoot do you know like it's a, like it's this yeah they one think of thing, like it's you know? the same bigfoot it's that's like been seen all around the world or whatever or yeah like exactly waldo. Like, yeah, yeah it's like yeah, waldo yeah. basically wandering um, around yeah, but yeah. Uh, there's, I guess it was Indian agent uh, J.W. Burns who first uh, used the term Sasquatch when describing sort of stories that he had collected. But uh-huh. I don't think the term, I think the term Bigfoot for this creature was popularized first, and then people started to say, like, wait, 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 you know, let's call it Sasquatch because it's cooler, you know, and uh, they had seen these other these other stories uh, referring to it, and they kind of brought it out for that reason. So, yeah, that was, uh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. But, yeah, the... But uh, anyway, so part of my point in bringing that up is that you can see the connection to Kane in these very disparate contexts, in these very like you know, uh, you know, totally far flung like Indonesia versus like Utah, you know, mm-hmm. uh, these same tropes like coming up in these kind of similar contexts of talking about this wood uh, bound uh, wild beast, you know, or being or sort of humanoid uh, creature. And the brother, um, yeah, the yeah, brother, yeah, the brotherhood, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Cain, the, the kind of really the first the first pair of brothers in the Bible are the Cain first and pair Abel, of brothers. Right? Yeah, exactly. Cain and Abel. Yeah, because yeah. Adam didn't have a brother and they were his kids. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, exactly. So, yeah, the, that does make sense. Let's say the sort of symbolic of this uh, this brotherhood. Um, and uh, yeah, it uh, um, I was going to th- I was thinking about something uh, else a little bit uh, relative to this. Uh, there was one other interesting thing uh, from some of these uh, articles that I read called the truth about the Bigfoot legend, which I think is interesting. And I feel like Halpin brought up some of those points about like the epistemology around like the idea, like or, uh, sort of ontological concerns around like reality and how mm-hmm. like our reality is a lot of time governed by science. But there's different kind of. Uh, ontological categories that maybe uh, aren't super operative in sort of mainstream uh, quote-unquote Western, like, you know, U.S., American, Euro-American discourse mm-hmm. um, uh, that, you know, uh, by which these things could be considered to be real in a way that maybe they aren't um, in, uh, you know, that, that discourse, that mainstream discourse. But um, this essay is kind of about that and about whether, like, the role of truth or the idea of uh, truth in these stories 
And uh, she brought up a pretty interesting idea that I think kind of relates to uh, some of the stuff that we've uh, raised before, um, if maybe in an oblique way. Mm -hmm. Uh, She talks about uh, this one... uh, What was his name? Let me uh, look up at the part. Okay, yeah. So she talks about this guy, uh, DeVries, I guess. Um, And uh, so he came up with... So, uh, yeah, he wrote... uh, I guess it was Manfred DeVries... Uh, mm-hmm. And he wrote, uh, The Abominable Snowmen or Bigfoot, a psychoanalytic search for the origin of Yeti and Sasquatch tales. And he said, uh, We have suggested the sightings of the Sasquatch and Yeti are most likely of a delusionary, illusionary or hallucinatory nature, and as such, the projections of conflicting images of people living in isolated environments under conditions of severe stress. The actual presence of bears and apes probably played a major role in the creation of these creatures, considering the process of condensation, distortion operating in dreams, delusions, and hallucinations. Many rituals and tales dealing with apes and bears support this contention. We have emphasized the great similarities in mental processes among children and primitive man, and have used this to explain these institutionalized animal-like phobias. We do, however, also realize that many of the more recent settings of these creatures, especially in the case of Sasquatch, have been made by, quote, modern man. So this is already, like, ridiculous, but what we suggest <laughs> that in these instances, conditions of severe stress mobilized defenses and subsequently more primitive psychological processes became operational. Sometimes the behavior of primitive and modern man seems to not be far apart. One aspect of the Yeti and Sasquatch that remains difficult to explain is the extraordinarily large number of sighted footprints. The geographical distribution of the tracks and the difficulty in making these tracks cannot be easily ignored. Apart from a real hoax, one hypothesis about this phenomenon could be that some individuals... In an attempt to master their fears of such strange creatures, are engaged in a total identification process. Imitation and impersonation hmm. becomes a consequence. It may explain the presence of these giant footprints. So wait, idea, he's saying that people people are dressing up as like a Bigfoot and like stomping around and leaving footprints. Basically, like people lose it under yeah. stress and under like their sort of inability to reconcile like their fear of kind of what we talked about, like this Bawis aspect, you know, mm-hmm. of uh, animality, humanity, like, and so uh, they're fear- trying to master, quote, their fears of strange creatures. They basically snap, and then they create Bigfoot tracks and, like, basically become Bigfoot in their minds, you know, like, kind of, <laughs> but it's similar like a to, possession. like, possession. Like yeah, the, like well, otter ex- possession. Exactly. The insanity. <laughs> it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the hypothermia story, but, uh, yeah, like, uh, and it's, uh, the author of this, uh, Linda Milligan, uh, she does say like one could accuse DeVry of legend making in place mm-hmm. of Bigfoot. He has substituted a contemporary quote, wild man. That is a human who devises a costume, not to hoax, but to totally assume the identity of Bigfoot. Uh, such psychological aberrations do occur. Stan Gordon, director of the Pennsylvania association for the study of unexplained, of the unexplained, and psychiatrist Berthold Eric Schwartz uh, investigated a case in Uniontown, Pennsylvania in 1973, in which a young man was so frightened by Bigfoot-like creatures that he seemed to go through the process of identification and impersonation described by DeVry. He became hysterical at the site where he and his young brothers observed a glowing ball of light hovering just above two ape-like creatures. As police investigators, uh, police investigators, the brothers, and their father searched the area for evidence hours after the sighting, the young man became hysterical, then began growling like an animal and tossed his father and one of the investigators to the ground. Uh, it should be noted, however, that his animal behavior was temporary. Um, you know, such behavior would have to be widespread and far more sustained to account for the footprints found across the continent. Um, hmm. So, but uh, he did, yeah. uh, she does uh, say that this did uh, 
happened at at one point um, wow but uh, uh or something similar to that it's, that's uh, very like altered states yes it all, is very as well states. you know like literally turning into bigfoot like yeah. re- regressing to your primordial uh more animalistic state uh mm-hmm. in a frenzied madness yeah wow um yeah, and it's yeah. interesting. Like, uh, I feel I feel like Devry's dismissal of dreams uh, is like a good kind of sticking point for this because, like, in a lot of cultures, like including like Islam, you know, like I mean, one of the most like uh, commonly like a, a very uh, typical idea in Islam is like the idea that if you, for instance, see a, a prophet that you see the prophet Muhammad or uh, you know maybe even another prophet in a dream, I think really the the prophet is the only person that Satan can't impersonate. So mm. if you see him in a dream, that is really him. Okay. Uh, so there's sort of an idea of the ontological reality of dreams. Uh, but, you know, okay. uh, and of course, like in these sort of scientific discourses, if you say Bigfoot is a dream, then you like that implies that it's not real. Uh, so uh-huh. this is like kind of I think it's a simplistic way uh, or an accessible way to frame this kind of epistemological problem that comes up around like not only this issue, but a lot of similar issues, like, uh, you know, the, um, the, like, the unreality of ex- experiences versus, like, the trying to establish some kind of objective reality, um, where, you know, these things, uh, don't have the same ontological status, uh, yeah. and how sometimes that can be, uh, sort of cultu- culturally chauvinistic, or, you mm-hmm. know, uh, because, you know, well, let's not, lest we forget, you know, this is a very popular indigenous idea, uh, it's true that it is, so, uh, you know, yeah, Sasquatch. Yeah. Sasquatch is a corruption of at least an indigenous word, so uh, it is, we don't want to uh, demean these uh, different epistemologies. But no, we uh, don't. Wherever wherever he pops up around the world, um, we don't want to take that chauvinistic approach. No. Here the sulfur river flows, rising when the storm cloud blows. This is where the creature goes, safe. Now that we've talked about the sort of, um, I don't know, uh, the mise en scène, the, the mise en scène, uh, the, on, the ontological, the historiographical concerns around uh, Bigfoot <laughs> um, associated yes. cryptids. Um, now we can kind of get like to the modern era and or you know to the twentieth century, pretty much and start to see how Bigfoot pops up um, really on both sides of the Cold War 
in ways that I actually did not previously know and, and was a little surprised by. Um, you've uncovered quite a trove of like yeah. declassified CIA memos. So I um, was actually stunned uh, by like, well, uh, well, just as a caveat, like a lot of the stuff that we talked about in the uh, earlier portion, like those beliefs like are those practices like in, in Indonesia, those kind of persist like today. But anyway, uh, yeah, I was shocked by in like the Cold War context, how much there was like a huge like intelligence connection with like the yeti and like uh hairy hominid like research like yeah. pretty much like every big like researcher of this had some kind of like intelligence link mm-hmm. um yeah i mean well it kind of even with the al you know where uh the sort of spy uh i came across while i was looking at the notes this uh this quote uh from the sasquatch people on their interdimensional connection where uh the author says we must go back and examine the fact that the forest giants are incredible mind readers the ultimate spies, if you will, mm. trained to be clandestine by a secret forest society, picking themselves from the dangers of superficial man. So there's uh, yeah, some kind of weird this connection shit, there. This shit is fascinating. Uh, in yeah. The, in the, th- that dimension of Bigfoot, even more so, I think, than kind of the like zoological uh, lines of inquiry yeah. into Bigfoot. Like, is he a descendant of a blah, blah, blah. The fact that yeah, he well, plays like some said, kind of important liminal societal role to a community. Yeah. The whole, like, standard, like, you know, it's like an undiscovered ape. We must find it. Like, you know, that just doesn't seem tenable like there's something but anyway yeah this and there's like even if it were all fake like this cold war stuff is interesting because it's like a battleground for uh sort of gamesmanship between the united states and the soviet union in the same way they've kind of talked about with um dolphins uh uh, yeah mind controls yeah Yeah. viewing etc yeah and at Um, first it's interesting that like at first when we did uh, our previous awara episode on uh soviet parapsychology the book i was drawing from uh the new soviet psychic discoveries i did think it was a little bit funny upon first glance that uh there are all these different kind of um you know, paranormal subjects covered in the book. And then there's a chapter on the Almasti of Dagestan. (laughs) And I thought, huh, like, it's interesting that the Soviets, both that the Soviets would take their time, some of the people they were interviewing would take their time to organize a meeting with somebody who claims to have encountered a wild man, uh, Yeti uh, type creature called the Almasti uh, in 1941 uh, during the world during World War II, uh, and also that the American authors are interested enough in the Bigfoot lore to include it alongside talk of UFOs and ETs yeah. and ESP and things like that. So they, even though Bigfoot kind of seems sometimes that it it's even an order of it's either in a separate category because it's more like cryptozoological or it's on a category of ridiculousness that is beyond even these other things. Like in some ways I think people, I think a lot of people would be more likely to entertain the idea of aliens than they would of Bigfoot, especially in these more like telepathic kind of spiritual paraspiritual kind of ways. Yeah. Um, That's interesting because I feel like a lot of Bigfoot researchers feel the opposite and they try to like, bury or suppress or disregard like all the reports of sasquatch having to do with ufos or like and they're like no it's a flesh and blood creature you know like we Uh don't want any of that the ufo stuff involved here so they feel like it has like you know they think that it is more uh 
accessible if they or more believable if they get rid of a ufo connection yeah. but i almost yeah but uh but in a yeah, way are weird. they limiting themselves by if you're gonna dive well, in they're on the not Bigfoot topic, really being open-minded are they you know they're no. not considering all the evidence that's available you know they're instantly writing off a lot of this ufo stuff much uh, like much know, like a these... ufologist who would refuse outright to consider the idea that ufos were gin exactly kind of yes. like that it's uh, like well no 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 that's religion that's not the, the what i'm talking i'm talking about yeah. real aliens like scientifically coming here you know in our plane of existence and uh just shutting off that interdimensional doorway um, yeah it's a very weird thing actually that's kind of like one of the big themes of one of the books i read uh searching for sasquatch um by uh what was his name a uh, books something uh mm-hmm. oh it's brian regal uh, is his name so completely different from what I thought. Uh, but yeah, it was still kind of the main theme was that ha- was how kind of a lot of these amateur researchers like are always clamoring for scientific acceptance. But like, you know, the thing is that if Bigfoot works at the by science, they all would be out of a job because then they would have to go to grad school and actually like get a degree in <laughs> Bigfoot studies. And like, it is you know, a paradox, uh, isn't it? yeah, exactly. And uh, also like, and it adds to that the fact that, like, a lot of this Bigfoot stuff, like, the sort of uh, scientific approach that they're, like, really adamant about taking uh, and, like, sort of banishing anything that seems kind of in that realm of the uncanny or the or the weird, uh, they, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that doesn't, that almost seems like less of a practical approach to it. Uh, and the same way that we kind of talked about how the ET hypothesis around UFOs sometimes seems more wacky than considering something you know more interdimensional that it's or, on a whole other order gym, gym. of yeah. uh, of magnitude uh, uh yeah and, yeah um so i think maybe to start out like both chronologically and i think it's a good jumping off point because i think actually the sort of interdisciplinary soviet approach to analyzing the almasti is actually i would say maybe at least in the presentation of this chapter, um, doesn't feel as kind of schizophrenic as the American reaction where you have all the all the experts, all the credentialed scientists on one side who will not entertain this this Bigfoot nonsense at all. And then you have kind of the, the believers who are like not uh, expertly trained, but have maybe are have the open mindedness necessary to tackle this topic. But I think there was like Although- a little bit more of a, a, a synergy um, in these Soviet circles in, um, yeah, well at this time there was kind of, there were a couple of people like in kind of academia or, you know, sort of like, a. actually I was surprised to learn. I didn't realize this when we did this episode, but, uh, Ivan T. Sanderson, who wrote that weird introduction that we read for those who heard all our Wara episode about Soviet parapsychology, mm-hmm. um, or in some of those books, uh, the guy who wrote the weird intro, the weird kind of like racist intro to um, <laughs> the Schroeder and Ostrander's book, um, uh-huh. you know, New Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. Um, he actually was like one of the biggest like abominable snowman, like Bigfoot people. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, he, of course, had an intelligence background. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, he yeah. he was uh, he said similar things. Actually, before we get into Almasi, it might be okay. good to. Uh, like set the tone with some of this because uh he uh he wrote uh or i'll just pro from regal about him uh 
uh, Sanderson considered the search for Abominable Snowman as more than just a search for monsters. He saw larger implications in the battle between monster enthusiasts and mainstream academics. When, quote, the people call for something, like investigating man-like monsters, he said, scientists are supposed to respond to their will. If they do not, if they say such a thing as a waste of time or makes no sense, then an erosion of our democratic society has occurred. Scientists have a duty to investigate at the people's bidding and, so, and to appear in the court of public opinion to explain themselves. All mainstream scientists ever did, according to Sanderson, so he is kind of positioning himself against them, uh-huh. was rail and rant against the idea of cryptozoology and assert it was foolishness. Thus, when the people, in caps, appealed to the, quote, experts in their guise of scientists in the court of public opinion was subjected to a tirade, uh, so that was even uh, by them even worse than that of the Nazis. So wow. it was worse than the Holocaust when uh, <laughs> anybody, yeah. he says, uh, with democracy hinging on the proof of the existence of the Yeti, Sanderson also linked the search uh, to the Cold War. In an, in publish, in an unpublished manuscript titled The Race for Our Souls, Sanderson laid out what he thought the consequences would be should the Soviets find the Yeti first. Oh my Sanderson God. raised the hunt for the Sasquatch <laughs> and Yeti to global proportions. The communists hold the lead not just in science, as shown by their success with Sputnik, but by leading the way in abominable snowman research. They had, he said, devoted many scientists and an entire scientific building to the problem. In fact, he intoned, they seem to think of everything, and they appear to be a lot more pragmatic and less squeamish than we are. So kind of agreeing with uh, your, your analysis. The subtext uh-huh. had the Russians receiving state funding, while he and his compatriots barely scraped by in need of either government funding or rich benefactors to bankroll their work. The reason the Soviets put so much effort into this, and why the West needed to beat them at it, was that if communists found a living yeti, it could be used by propagandists to rock the entire religious and ethical pyramid to its very foundations. In his <laughs> apocalyptic vision and shaky logic, knowledge of the existence of abominable snowmen in the wrong hands raised questions about human evolution and religious orthodoxy. Just why this would not happen if the West found it, Sanderson did not articulate. He argued quite seriously that the very future of freedom and democracy itself, possibly all life on Earth, rested on who found a Sasquatch first. Wow. Okay, Uh, so he's complaining about the Sasquatch gap. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Wow. Yeah, they were taking it more seriously. They were leagues ahead of us, uh, you know, just as... I guess was it William Colby who said like we are not behind yes. in mind control. Yeah, yeah well, he, he was, said yeah. he said that we belo- we were paranoid that they were leagues ahead of us in ESP research, and then we realized that we had been ahead all along, and we are definitely ahead today. <laughs> uh, Yikes. Yes. Well, uh, I don't know what the case was with Sasquatch, but he definitely thought that they were ahead and on the Sasquatch front. Yeah, and that we needed yeah. To do something about it. Well, uh, I mean, with that, I guess if he was uh, shaken to his core by the Soviet approach, maybe we should drive. Uh, we should dive into chapter yeah, sixteen. Yeah, story is great. Yeah, definitely. It's great. It's uh, great. I'll try to just hit the the greatest hits here. Uh, this is from uh, chapter sixteen on the trail of the Almasti, the Caucasus abominable snowman, and it begins. Uh, it is not Lieutenant Colonel Vargan Karapetian's long and distinguished career in the Red Army Medical Corps, which included service in some of the toughest campaigns against the Nazi invaders in World War II, that makes him so unusual. Rather, it is the incredible fact that he is the only medical man in the world ever to have conducted a close physical examination of an almasty, as the abominable snowman is referred to in Russia's backwoods. Several days later, after a field court-martial for, quote, desertion, the abominable snowman was executed. The bizarre incident happened in December 1941 at the height of the defense of the snow-covered mountains of the Caucasus. Subsequently, with the other principles of the drama having vanished into thin air, Karapetsin was left, 
the only witness to tell the tale. Um, and he did tell the tale to a group of scientists uh, in the late 1950s. Um, and uh, at this point, um, when the American authors went there, uh, some of these scientists like arranged a uh, you know an evening where uh, Karapatian would come and relay his story of encountering um, the Almasdi. So he begins uh, <clears throat> he begins with his tale, Colonel Colonel Karapetian. It was early December 1941. The Red Army Colonel were called. His unit, a motorized fusilier battalion, had just taken up a position alongside a mountain ridge commanding the approaches to the town of Buinaksk in the valley below. This particular area of Dagestan, on the eastern flank of the Caucasus, was of particular strategic importance. A German breakthrough here would open the door to an invasion of the Caspian shore, could bring about the loss of the city and oil fields of Baku some 220 miles to the south, and, in a pincer movement, could lead to a Nazi conquest of the entire Transcaucasus. It was up there, then, on the ridges blanketed in deep snow, that an enemy would have to be held at all costs. The Russian defense lines were thin, their armament poor. Every man counted. Every sharpshooting mountaineer was mustered to help block the narrow passes. The Red Army had called on every Dagestani and Ingush, Kabardine and Balkar, of the mountains and of the lowland, to augment the regulars with partisan units. The units spread out across the mountain ridges, manning every crevice that had a commanding view of the valley the enemy had to come through. Red Army and partisans from other areas, such as the Ossets and the Chechens, moved around as best they could, guided by local mountaineers who had left their Awuls, native villages. All these many years later, Karapatian could still see it in all in sharp focus. We had been in the area for a few days, getting ready to fight off any penetration of Nazi troops when I suddenly received word by field telephone that I was wanted. A group of partisans who had dug in above an abandoned owl requested that I go over to examine a strange man who had been taken prisoner. Their objective was to determine whether he was a Nazi saboteur who had infiltrated the area, a Red Army deserter, or a common criminal. When Karapetian asked why he, a military doctor, was wanted for the questioning of a prisoner, the answer was that the captain's behavior was strange. He was a weird apparition, a man covered with long hair. The partisans believed he was using this particular disguise to deceive them. The opinion of a medical man was imperative. Very well, Karapetian said. I'll have a look at him. Can you bring him over to our headquarters? The reply was no. He cannot be taken out for a variety of reasons. It was essential that Karapetian go to the prisoner. The outpost base near the Aul was not very far away. When Karapetian arrived at the mountain village, he was led into an isolated house where the outpost had established its headquarters. Once inside, Karapetian took off his fur coat and said, Bring in the prisoner. The partisans glanced at each other. Then their leader said, Sorry, doctor. You will have to put on your heavy clothes again and come with us. We can't bring him in here. Why? The answer, almost spit out in contempt, was... When brought into a heated room, he sweats. Sweat just pours off him. He stinks and is covered with lice. We have him under guard in a barn nearby. The barn was old and decrepit, barely standing up against the howling wind and heavy snow. The temperature inside was that of the outside, below freezing. A guard flung open the wooden door, and Karapetian was led into the dark interior. A storm lantern was brought in, and in its flickering light, Karapetian caught sight of a man standing in the middle of the barn. The first question that crossed his mind was man or beast a bear standing on his hind legs or a human being he gave the captive a second closer look a partisan held up the lantern looks like a man karapetian said to himself naked barefoot hairy but a man we glanced at zakarchenko who nodded silently 
every word was true. He was standing erect, Karapatin went on. His legs were spread out, his arms hanging by his side, his head thrust forward in a stance of strength. He was covered with dark brown hair, yet his proportions were definitely those of a man. His height was a little above medium, I would say about 175 centimeters, very powerful, wide-chested and broad-shouldered. I estimated his age in human terms at being between 45 and 50. The hair covering his back, chest, and most of his abdomen was thick and long. Other parts of his body were covered with thinner hair. The backs of his hands were covered with long hair. His fingers had less, his palms had none. On the average, the hair was about two centimeters in length. He was bear-like in some respects, but definitely not ape-like. I noticed that his hands were very big, and his fingers unusually strong. At first, his face confused me because of the absence of beard or mustache. His nose was not broad, squashed-looking, or protruding. In fact, it also looked human. The face was oval-shaped, the hair on the head wavy but not long. His face was covered with a light fluff, like that of a calf. His genitals appeared human. His eyes focused on something that wasn't there. His look was dull and vacant. He blinked occasionally. His captors had told the truth. He was crawling with lice. They even crawled around his mouth, through his bushy eyebrows, all around his neck. They were larger than the lice we know, yet he paid no attention to them. I was so shocked at what I saw, I turned around to the three guards who had come into the barn with me and said, Hell, comrades, you could have at least disinfected him before bringing him out for a medical inspection. One of the guards replied, We didn't think he would survive it. I said, You're right. Let me have a closer look at him. I walked up to the man. To me, he was a man and stretched out my hand for a handshake. His arms didn't move. I screamed a command. Attention! Nothing. He didn't even blink. Karapatian had been talking in a strong military monotone. His repeated command, Attention! was truly a professional soldier's command. He shrugged at the recollection, then went on. There was a bucket of water on a stool in the corner and a piece of bread on a newspaper. The water was iced over. Neither obviously had been touched. How long have you kept him here? I asked. They said, since he was caught two days ago, he was brought in by our patrol. Had he eaten at all? The answer was no. At this point, Karapetian remembered with a slight shudder how he took a medical tweezer out of his bag, went up to the prisoner, and proceeded to pull hair from various parts of his body. The creature flinched but made no sound. This proved that Karapetian was pulling it from the man's own skin and not from an animal pelt that an enemy saboteur might possibly be wearing. The skin was taut and fleshy. Not satisfied, Karapetian pulled a hair in the man's nostril. He growled in obvious pain, but did not raise his arms in self-defense. He blinked several times, and Karapetian read a plea for mercy in the man's eyes. I truly felt sorry for him at this point, but I had a job to do. The guard stood by my side with their revolvers at the ready should the strange beast attack. It appeared he had submitted to me in a situation he could not understand. I stepped back and called out, Come over here. I beckoned with my hand, still nothing. Obviously, he did not understand me. Two of the guards then pushed him in my direction. He raised one leg, made one step toward me. The movement was half man, half bear. He groaned, seemingly in protest. The sound came from deep within his throat. I could tell he could not speak. I looked at my watch. Exactly eight minutes had passed since I entered the barn, and I had reached my conclusion. He is not a spy, a saboteur, or deserter, I told the men. I would say this is a harmless creature, a man who has chosen to live in the wilderness. Catching a frown on their faces, I added, Obviously, he's your prisoner, not mine. The decision is what to do with him rests with you. At that, I turned around and left, followed by two of the guards. They took me to the command post, and there I repeated my statement. I could see on their faces they would have preferred that I decreed the creature a spy or deserter. As I was leaving, escorted by one of their commanders to the rim of the owl, I asked, What do you plan to do with him? He shrugged. 
What can we do? Get rid of him. He didn't specify. It could have meant setting him free or shooting him. My impression was that they would set him free. I don't know why I thought so. Maybe I was hoping they would. I returned to my unit, and a couple of days later I was told by a soldier that the creature the partisans had caught had escaped. This absolved me of any responsibility or additional action. I breathed a sigh of relief. Mind you, we were involved in a desperate rearguard action, and we were ourselves cut off from the cities. We were fighting for our lives, the survival of our country. The Nazis were at the gates of Moscow and were threatening to slide across the Caucasus into Iran. There was no time for me as a medical man to think of carrying out an additional investigation to check out whether the man had really escaped, and if not, to get another close look at him, take pictures. Even if the thought had occurred to me to get him away from the partisans and to preserve him for science, my mind was on the war. His voice faded, and he was obviously feeling ill at ease. Anyway... This is, my, uh, <clears throat> this is my story. Zakarchenko spoke without hesitation, sounding compassionate and warm. Colonel, you were a soldier. You did the right thing. It couldn't be helped, and you have rendered a service of inestimable value to science by preserving the details of your encounter. On behalf of all of us here, thank you for this remarkable account. I know that Professor Bortsev has something to add to your report. Correct, Bortsev replied. The execution was officially confirmed. <laughs> Oh, no. Um, and, uh, yes, I guess a report on... He has a document that says, Report on an inquiry at the Ministry of Interior, the Autonomous What's Soviet the Socialist... What's professor? Uh, professor? Professor Bortsev says this. That the... the um, Igor Bortsev. Yeah. Um, okay. And he was at this meeting, and he said, "Yeah, report on an inquiry at the Minister of Interior at the Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic of Dagestan in Makhachkala uh, in response to uh, an official inquiry as to the fate of one unnamed person allegedly executed following a court-martial by partisan forces near the town of Buinaksk in Dagestan circa mid-1941. Mid December 1941. It was ascertained that a prisoner fitting the description was dealt with in accordance with the laws of war applying to deserters the reply was signed by comrade aliyev minister of interior uh, this means he said the prisoner was executed by a firing squad i should explain this came to light many years later after colonel karapetian came forward and told scientists of his experience we immediately went into action by then it was 1960 aliyev had retired but we were able to secure the information from him as he was very interested in helping us find out the truth at the same time we sent out our first team to the area to interrogate local people and to look for a body i'm sorry to say that nothing was found even though we went back several times we found the local people very secretive as the resolve to deny us information this puzzled this puzzled us until our esteemed colleague dr kaufman succeeded in solving the riddle it's quite a story um so uh, so i i forget if bortsev is like legitimately uh believe this story that he was uh sentenced uh for being a deserter and shot um but there is i think it might be uh Jana Jana Kaufman, um, who is a legendary um, Russian anthropologist, who's actually who's actually French, but moved uh, to the Soviet Union, I think, with her parents when she was young, and uh, had chose and you know chose uh, to live in the Soviet Union, devoted her life to seeking the abominable snowman in the Caucasus. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, I yeah I think I came across her in my reading as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh. So wait, what uh, is there so, more? Like so, what, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So there that that's like you know that's level one. 
is that you know uh, the this Almasi got executed and nobody knows anything about it and that's the end of the story. But you can um, already pick up on like some of the themes, you know, the themes of, of course, like extermination, like you know, uh-huh. uh, all this stuff, like uh, and the secrecy yeah. around the fate mm-hmm. of this Almasi, and uh, it seems yeah. quite, uh, quite, you know, um, uh, quite clean and neat that uh, you know the, this this memo would come out that basically I, confirmed uh, the execution, even though yeah. you know it's just what somebody said we don't know if they were actually there um yeah and uh i came across like a bunch of similar stories about like uh you know american bigfoot like you know, the u.s government like hiding bigfoot bodies like after the mount st helens eruption or something like there were a bunch <laughs> of dead sasquatch and they had to like hide them all i even yeah. heard like i think that david polites the missing 401 guy uh was sort of uh kind of tentatively co-signing this weird idea that the famous like Patterson Gimlin film of like, you know, Bigfoot walking away from the camera. Like there was an additional, like a couple minutes of uh, footage where like there were three other Bigfoot and they were all like shot and it was actually like a massacre or something. And like, that's like a wounded Bigfoot, like staggering away. Like, Mm. you know, uh, but anyway, yeah. Well, you know, uh, that's actually, it's interesting you say that because, um, (laughs) as they go on, uh, talking about Bortsev, he does mention that, you know, he says, I, he talks about all the different sightings around the world and how the Darwin Museum in Moscow is the center of all Masti studies. And he says, I wish we had something more substantial than just reports. The best evidence we have are footprints preserved in plaster and a copy of the film taken at Bluff Creek in Northern California in 1967, showing yeah. a creature that Karapetian told us was like the beast he examined. Yeah, that's like the famous uh, Bigfoot yeah, film, yeah. Right? right? Yeah, so they were well aware of that. One thing is certain, though. Everywhere in the world, the Almasti is an object of hunters, and he knows it. We have verified several (laughs) incidents, particularly in Tajikistan, where Almasti have been shot and wounded but never captured. These were cases where native hunters deliberately stalked the creatures through the snow with the sole intention of killing them. The Almasti is determined to elude us even to the point of hiding his dead, very much like the apes of Ceylon. But he is relatively safe in the Caucasus, thanks to the local people, and he knows that, too. That's why we're concentrating on these mountains, and Dr. Kaufman is gradually closing in on them. She knows exactly where to look. And uh, so that brings us to uh, Dr. Kaufman, who really uh, has done really uh, some deep Almasti work here. So let me see what she... uh what she says she's she's also an amateur uh ufologist and has studied uh esp so she's like very much in with like this whole kind of um crowd and kirlian photography she loves it um Mm -hmm. okay oh yeah i guess the the abominable snowman was outside of her house once while she was sleeping she was very mad about that um she just missed him um yeah. yeah okay so here we go um yeah, there were several people in this region that claimed to have seen Almasdis. Uh, like they said, you know, they're lying on their grass, like hanging out. But when they saw humans, they got up and ran away. Um, okay, so yeah, it from 1959 to 1979, uh, basically, Dr. Kaufman will have been searching the Caucasus for 20 years. I come and go, but there's always somebody in our field station to take an eyewitness deposition. Um, she's interviewed. 
uh, personally interviewed close to 4,000 people. Um, oh, yeah, she's known as the... <laughs> she's she's known as the Shaitan Lady, uh, the lady protected by good spirits in the mountain villages and hamlets from the slopes of Mount Elbrus to Mount Diktau to Mount Kazbek. Um, mm. uh, yeah, what's that all about, like, with the Shaitan as, like, a good spirit? Um, I don't know. Okay, oh, that's... so, okay, so here we go. Like, um, okay, this is a... Uh, this is the big one. Okay, so Professor Yuri Efremov, the noted Russian physiographer, told Iwer Bortsev how back in 1966 he chanced on a meeting at the Geographical Institute of the Soviet Academy of Sciences and heard Dr. Kaufman report on what she had learned of the primitive man of the Caucasus. She was, Efremov remembered, loaded down with eyewitness accounts she'd collected throughout Kabardino, Balkaria, Dagestan, the Lenko region of southern Azerbaijan, really remote places. As a geographer, Efremov's first doubts were concerned with the question of how an unusually big man could hide out in the area. The creature had been reported in the valleys of Kabardi, Malka, Gundalin, Baksan. Yes, yet these were only several dozen miles from the city of Kislovodsk, with a population of 80,000. What would he eat? Where would he winter? How could he escape detection by huntsmen and by pursuing dogs? And how, for that matter, could he escape disease? Dr. Kaufman answered each and every question. The area abounded in deep caves, tunnels, and nooks and crannies carved by nature into the limestone. Even though the main valleys nowadays feature automobile roads, the canyons of the mountain streams still are impassable to machines and accessible only to the best mountain climbers. A wild man could move around freely, could live off the land, but more importantly, off the simple local villagers who had developed a boundless loyalty to the Almasti, the man of the mountains who would harm no one. Down through time, he had become part of local legend. He was the man in whom lived the good spirit called Shaitan. Muslim, um, yeah. This gets good. Uh, Muslim beliefs made him holy and untouchable. Anyone who destroyed an Almasti was himself subject to severe punishment. In fact, about a century ago, the Almasti stayed with the villagers, helping with domestic chores and in the field. But as their villages, or Aeols, became more and more accessible to strangers, the Almasti were let go by their mountaineer friends. However, they would leave food out for them to snatch during the night. And while the Almasti lives in areas not contaminated by man, they come down to forage for themselves to pick up the food, <clears throat> sour milk, cheese, cabbage heads, that people leave for them outside their houses. It was considered a good omen when they came back at night for food. So they can easily live off what the villagers let them have while being protected from strangers. Their fur keeps them warm in wintertime. Their animal ruggedness is their shield against disease. Their strong hands are their protection against wolves and mountain lions. Incredibly strong, they have no fear of the beasts of the mountain, and they can cope with all of them, including the bear. They have adopted them, adapted themselves to night living. They can see at night as well as any other animal. They are lonely creatures, wandering through the mountains and maybe dreaming of the time they didn't have to hide from their cousins, the creature called man. By now, Dr. Kaufman had told us everything, it seemed, except for one thing, how she had solved the riddle of Carpathian's Almasti. She was at first reluctant to discuss it, then finally gave in. It was her female instinct, she said, that told her something was wrong with those partisans in Carpathian's account. Karapatian's story had no ending. It was provided by others confirming that the Almasti was executed. But why would those fine, upstanding mountain people execute a friend? They knew better. He was not a spy, nor was he a saboteur of deserter. Quote, I had to learn the truth. It would be my contribution to history, if you will. 
That summer of 1959, she crisscrossed the area again and concluded that the local people were definitely hiding something. She decided to look elsewhere for the answer. The elsewhere would have to be the Low Country, the narrow strip of flatland that stretches alongside the Caspian Sea not 30 miles away. She went from village to village and then, through sheer luck, chanced upon some folk who had heard about Nalmasti who was shot as a deserter in World War II. It had been passed down to them from the mountains, a strange tale. How would how had it come down? Somebody had to tell it, somebody who knew. It was thus Dr. Jana Kaufman pointed an accusing finger at an old villager bearing healed scars of war. She accused him of having been one of the executioners of the Almasti. He fell for her bluff, admitted it, and told the story of what had happened. The man, whom she refused to identify, had been a member of a patrol of local Ossets who had been guarding the railroad that runs north from Baku along the Caspian Sea into Russia proper. The railroad and his ideal escape route for possible deserters, and there were deserters there among the local tribesmen, not all of whom were willing to fight an enemy they'd never even heard of before. One morning in December 1941, the patrol checking the railroad tracks came across footprints left in the freshly fallen snow. The footprints led away from the railroad into the mountains. Who, the men asked themselves, would want to run through the snow on bare feet in wintertime? It had to be someone trying to escape, a deserter who knew of a hiding place in the mountains. The men set out in pursuit, Dr. Kaufman recounted, determined not only to catch the man, but possibly come upon a nest of deserters hiding out in the mountains. As night fell, they reached an abandoned owl and stayed for a brief rest, continuing the pursuit in the early morning. They were following the same footprints. They were fresh and they were obvious. A man was walking into the mountains to hide. The Osset partisans had enough provisions with them to keep going, higher and higher into the mountains. They spent the second night in a cave. By the evening of the third day, they caught up with their quarry. When they first caught sight of their man, they thought he was wearing a suit of fur. Under one arm, he was carrying a large head of cabbage. They demanded he present his documents. There was no reply. According to the old man who came back, the deserter didn't even try to resist. I assume that the poor Almasti who had gone down to lowlands looking for food because all his benefactors had gone, was in a state of shock. They tied his hands, attached a rope to his neck, and with their prisoner in tow, pushed on looking for another owl to spend the night. They came across the partisan outpost, identifying themselves as partisans from another area, and said they had brought a prisoner, a deserter. The rest, I surmise. The old men didn't quite remember the details of the order of events. The Ossets took it upon themselves to guard their prisoner, planning to take him back. A heavy blizzard then set in, which Karapatin clearly remembers, upset their plans. It would be simpler to get rid of the man by shooting him on the spot. After all, he was their captive. He belonged to them. I like to assume that whatever local people there were among the partisans at this outpost knew or realized that the prisoner was an Almasti. I would say that only a few of the men up there knew about the prisoner anyway. By the same token, the Ossets of the patrol, being lowland people, had never dealt with an Almasti, a warlike tribe and heathens who became Christians a mere hundred years ago. They would have no knowledge of Muslim legends about the man of the mountains. Anyway, they obviously decided not to bother taking the weird deserter back, shot him, then made out a report about a court-martial and firing squad execution. I believe this is how it really happened, because it explains so many incongruities, especially why the local people subsequently questioned by me and by Bortsev clammed up. They pretended they knew nothing and never heard anything. I think they were ashamed of their failing to protect a friend. I also think that they buried him, making sure the grave would never be found. I also have a theory about the reason the Osset patrol subsequently disappeared, totally, fully, as though they never existed, with the exception of this one badly scarred man. 
I think the mountain folk caught up with them and avenged the death of their Almasti the only way they knew, eye for eye, tooth, tooth for tooth, and only one man escaped them, but we'll never know for sure, because this man is now dead too. He took the secret of another execution, if there was one, to his grave. Hmm. So uh, that's the real story, according to Dr. Kaufman, of the Almasti, was that he was captured by lowland Ossets who did not under, did not have the symbiotic friendly relationship that um, Dagestani people had towards the Almasti. And so uh, Yeah, I feel like there must be something going on with the idea that pops up of Shaitan being like a good spirit. I feel like something got lost in translation there. That threw me a though, little bit. Yeah, even though there were definitely, like, you know, different dialects, it seems weird to me that uh, that would be the case. I mean, maybe, maybe somehow Shaitan, like, is uh, used to mean jinn, but I don't know, because Shaitan is in the Quran, so, like, anyone yeah. who had any relationship with the Quran would think of Shaitan as being bad. I um, wonder if perhaps maybe they got it a little bit backwards whereas uh their their acknowledgement of like a positive shaitan was a folk belief that was sort of like folded into Islam um because maybe, I knew but I feel like even that if it were a folk belief the name they would have used for it would have been something different. Yeah, um, well maybe I mean yeah. maybe it was yeah, kind of a, a mashup of uh Islamic concepts and folk concepts and they used the terminology, Arabic terminology, you know. Well, or, maybe they or, just like uh misinterpreted like sort of fear and uh you know, maybe respect as like it being a positive spirit, like just because you know, they observed kind of like taboos around it or left it alone and didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it doesn't sound, though, that it sounds like the Almasti was their friend. And uh, they said that the legend of the man in the mountain who would never hurt, you know, a human soul, um, who is peaceful, mm. and they would leave out, you know, heads of cabbage and food for them. And the Almasis used to live in their villages and help with uh, tasks and things like that. Yeah. But then mm. when, you know, uh, like transportation networks kind of started to get villages got more connected they receded back to the mountains but where they would come down and and people said it was like good fortune to leave out some food like if i, I it's really sweet i don't know like the idea of like waking up and seeing like an empty plate on like your windowsill and like knowing the almasti came down and like grabbed yeah. your food or something like there it, it really harks back to what you were saying earlier about the symbiotic relationship of like protection and like like it is like a brother like an old brother or something like out in the mountains that's kind of like looking out for you in a weird way mm -hmm. and so yeah. like the dagestanis would like never they would they would know the nature of an almasti and they would never do something like you know just shoot it and right. leave it behind yeah. um there must be something because i don't think that even if it were like i mean obviously there's all sorts of like Isma islamized folk beliefs but the term shaitan like would not be used for something positive i don't think like i the only example i can think of that's kind of like that is yazidis who kind of yeah exactly uh, um the yeah. iblis right yeah well yeah they but they have kind of different beliefs i don't necessarily know if they see themselves as being muslim i don't really think that they do no they um, don't they kind they of don't. yeah and they don't necessarily call what they there's rumors that maybe they do that maybe they but really like uh the rumor is that they what I've heard is that they don't use the term shaitan and that they don't actually like refer uh, 
or even use the you know uh the shit the shit sound uh, mm-hmm. because that would be, or anything that sounds kind of like shaitan, because it's considered to be like a ban or a taboo. Um, okay. You know, maybe yeah. because that's, there's an association with uh, yeah. cows or whatever. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, it, it, it's uh, a it's a strange usage of the term. Um, and yeah, also calling, like, peculiar. calling um, yeah. Dr. Kaufman a uh, shaitan lady. Um, yeah. You know, in, like, uh, as, like, an a, as a positive It almost makes me think, like, uh, yeah, exactly. It almost makes me think, like, oh, they love me. They're calling me shaitan lady. <laughs> and, like, uh, I don't yeah, know, though. I think, like, but, but to, to get to, like, the substance of, like, what she was kind of reporting there was that they did have, like, a positive relationship with the Almasti. Yes. And whatever they uh, call him they viewed him as like a positive uh entity that you know should be coexisted with and should not be you know hunted down yes. and though they're of course like they having this in it's tajikistan possible. there were hunters that would like man can't yeah. really be trusted it's only these kind of small community these tightly knit communities that they can build a kind of relationship with but like strange men like strangers uh tend to want to kill them so yeah they tend to I run mean, away well i feel like there's also obviously like a huge like tension between like malevolence and positivity even like with the old hunter the old hunter uh in sort of indonesian uh practice or, or belief can uh kind of have like a malevolent aspect or you know obviously you can also be helpful uh you know if you compare like the yaoi in like australia to like bigfoot like bigfoot is usually like pretty kindly or at least has a kindly aspect whereas the yeah we are like cannibalistic like even within like north american like bigfoot beliefs uh you know there's this sort of uh harry and the hendersons type bigfoot versus the you know scary uh wendigo type bigfoot so i wonder if you know there might have been that like the whole mention of shaitan makes me think that there is uh, there's something going on there, like because it's just <laughs> very, very peculiar, uh, and I wonder it, if there's like something being kind of lost in translation or like misunderstood. Like I don't know, um, but it sticks out yeah. though. But you know, um, yeah. But I, um, but I think that idea of uh, like they at least so these researchers seem to have at least gotten a little bit closer to the idea of um, of a kind of social role of like an Almasti or a Bigfoot, uh, not just being like a cryptid, you know, animal running around that it, um, yeah, it was like integrated with the society. Um, yeah. 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 And that I guess it's not that it's of... like not that weird and rare in certain mountainous regions of central Asia for yeah. like rural villagers to encounter Al- Almasti all the time. Yeah, um, and that kind of does in some ways parallel uh, the way that, uh, you know, sort of contemporary ideas about the way that Native Americans lived in harmony with Sasquatch or whatever that you kind of uh, see circulating in in some contexts uh, now um, that, you know, they were somehow integrated uh, socially, but then there was a sort of, uh, during colonization, maybe there was like a fall or a rupture or uh, maybe in some earlier point there was a rupture uh, that happens. Yeah, um, I, I guess there's legends of, of both Native American tribes having a kind of positive relationship with the Sasquatch, and then there's also, like, hostile legends about Sasquatch-type creatures uh, yeah, warring I think that that's with one of the big tribes. Things. Yeah, I mean, they are, like, jinn in a way, where, like, there can be good or kindly jinn, uh-huh. but, you know, they're also, of course, scary. Um, yeah. You know, they can give you sort of power, but there's also, like, a, 
uh, frightening aspect to them. Um, but, uh, yeah, but in a lot of the time, people, uh, if they're seen as peaceful, uh, there's an impression that they, like, you know, uh, people who are, like, foreign or, or outside, like, you know, uh, others maybe have, like, a, a clo- uh, are closer to them uh, sure. than, you know, the s- sort of civilized uh, people, you know. I could see how, from, like, a Soviet point of view, like, people in, you know, far-flung areas of, of Dagestan could, you know, be seen as more attuned to the Almasti way of life uh-huh. um, exactly. than people in, in Moscow. 100%. Yeah. Wow! in Nepal and maybe you know because yeah. not long after this Almasti incident the United States yeah. government uh, including what Alan Dulles to some degree um, well Alan Dulles like had a weird remark about it uh, but yeah uh, this is actually a good place to quote Brian Regal again because he goes into this pretty well he actually has a little section called the CIA and the snowman that mm-hmm. covers like some of the stuff particularly Thomas Slick and, and some related figures Uh, I think you'll find this interesting. So um, there was an earlier Daily Mail-funded Yeti expedition uh, that I guess involved uh, Ripley, maybe of Ripley's Believe It or Not, and this guy Carlton Kuhn, who was like an OSS agent. And uh, after that, uh, so the Daily Mail expedition, this is Brian Regal, uh, Mm -hmm. aroused the interest of many amateurs. One of the more significant was Thomas Baker, uh, slick, an eccentric, enigmatic Texas oil millionaire, Slick had an interest in monsters, and he financed a number of expeditions looking for the Yeti and Sasquatch. In fact, Slick's passion and largesse helped many of the uh, of the early founders of anomalous primate research, including uh, René Dachinden and Peter Byrne, pursue their work. Slick's largesse would also be a source of frustration at times. Slick had been drawn to Asia and its mysteries since childhood. He traveled to the region several times and heard legends and rumors of the Yeti. Besides mm. monsters, international politics fascinated Slick. Uh, though born in Texas and holding a lifelong attachment to the Lone Star State, he had a cliched Eastern elite establishment upbringing, including Yale University and membership in the Skull and Bones fraternity. Oh, uh, okay. You just, right. just get, you're not, this is not even, okay, just get ready. He moved <sighs> in the same mid-20th century circles that produced future CIA director Alan Dulles, conservative publishing mogul Henry Luce, and other proponents of the American century ideal, including both Presidents Bush. 
He traveled through Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia in the 1930s, later developing a taste for Nazi memorabilia. Politically a moderate conservative Republican, Slick's ideas were given a quirky temper by an interest in global peace studies and by an almost utopian liberal notion of bringing the world together through the expansion of the human mind rather than the brute force of so many of his peers advocated. While it is difficult to determine anything for sure about Slick's uh, Weltanschauung, uh, I always pronounce that word wrong, mm-hmm. uh, he may have rebelled against the straight for, uh, straight-laced formalism of mid-century conservative American exceptionalism prevalent in his class and have reached for something higher. He articulated such sentiments in permanent peace. Slick argued for the United States to join with other nations, including those of the communist bloc, to create a kind of world police force to help ensure peace and stifle war. In addition, the United States would have to give up some sovereignty in global matters, even some of its overseas possessions. It would have to, along with all the other nations who had them, reduce and eventually eliminate its nuclear arsenal. To further this end, Slick sponsored the 1961 Conference to Plan a Strategy for Peace held in New York at Columbia University. The discussions included such notions as that the government of the People's Republic of China be drawn into fuller participation in the international community. He also founded a series uh, of institutes, <laughs> including the Mind Science Foundation of San Antonio, Texas. Along uh, with these interests, he dreamed of monsters. Stirred by the Daily Mail expedition, Slick contacted a number of individuals about mounting an expedition of his own. In 1956, he made an initial visit to the area to get the lay of the land and talk with locals. While speaking with Tenzing Norgay of Everest fame, he learned of Peter Byrne, uh, also trying to get an expedition going. Born in Ireland, Byrne had been a tea grower in India who, like so many other Europeans and Americans, became obsessed with a Yeti legend and was determined to find one. He left Asia for Australia, where he worked as a journalist and at drumming up financial support for a Yeti expedition. Uh, Byrne proved to be one of the most adept of the monster hunters at getting financing for the quest. In 1956, he returned to Nepal, and he and Slick eventually met and agreed to work together. Biographer Lauren Coleman is convinced that Slick and Byrne probably worked for the CIA in some capacity. Slick's niece, Catherine Nixon Cook, dismisses such claims, saying there's nothing referring to the CIA in Slick's papers. Uh, as, okay. Uh, the mm. CIA, I guess, also, like, uh, I did find this weird uh, document that was declassified by the CIA uh, that was responding to some kind of weird allegation. I could not determine what the allegation was. Uh, yeah. But it had to do with Klaus Barbie, Barbie uh-huh. uh, who was like a Nazi war criminal. Um, and I guess it was in 1983 that yeah. they wrote this memo. So you had and mentioned that it was around Contra time. Yeah, I also didn't yeah. realize that uh, uh, Thomas Slick uh, died in a private plane crash in yeah. 1962. His, his plane broke up in the air, just like Gary Carey did yeah. it? Did it really? Yes, it did. Oh, um, I think so, yeah. Uh, I think okay. it was the same thing where his plane like kind of just broke up in the air. Yeah, and the, um, and there and yeah, you found yeah, this, it disintegrated uh, in flight. Wow. Okay. Yeah, just uh, I mean, uh, it's funny how his plan sounded like like literally like one world government folks. Yeah, uh, they're gonna bring the UN government. patrolling our streets. Like, you yes. know, they're giving sovereignty to China, folks. Uh, mm-hmm. but like back when the Soviet Union was still around and even before the Sino-Soviet split, maybe that was the beginning of, like, the seduction operation to, like, get China to be like, come on, like, come over to our side. Uh, um, yeah, uh, maybe. Very, I mean, he was involved in some some heady activities. 
Uh, yes, he was. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, and it got even uh, more sus. Uh, when yeah, th- he got this kinda... memo. I kind of want to read this memo from yeah, 1983. Yeah, 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 by all means. Which, yeah, just read. Yeah, like it's short, we are lacking crucial weird. context, but uh, it's yeah. Memorandum. We don't know the... what the allegation was, but they responded to it. They also disavowed his links with them. Uh, they did. But they he did, was suspected but... by many, including like a lot of the people who worked with him uh of being i mean maybe they were projecting because a lot of them were uh cia spies but a lot of Uh the other bigfoot and yeti people were like this guy's a a sus like spook um and and kind of like enamored with nazis and yeah i mean he did um, love nazi memorabilia like Uh, just like aquino um okay so yeah the, the subject of this memo is redacted possible allegations regarding nazi war criminal klaus barbie uh one in researching the allegation made by mrs jerry walsh Regarding the connection between Thomas Slick and Klaus Barbie, the following is the results of traces on Slick. Uh, Date and place of birth, uh, May 1916, Clarion, Pennsylvania. Graduated from Yale, 1938-1940. Founded the Southwest Research Institute, 1946. Founded the Institute of Inventive Research, which was an offshoot of the Southwest Research Institute. Both are located in San Antonio, Texas. In April 1953, he met with then-CIA Director Dulles and proposed that CIA pay for establishing Institute of Inventive Research offices in Europe and Asia. Slick was advised that CIA did not need offices of this type, so his request for funds was denied. In 1957, Slick discussed funding with Life magazine, Henry Luce, Skull and Bones, uh, via the San Antonio Zoo to go to Nepal to study the abominable snowman. In October 1958, Slick requested CIA to subsidize offices of scientific exchange. This request was denied. In October 1959, Slick attended the Third Conference for Strategy and Peace in Warrentown, Virginia. This entry represents the last information that we have on Slick. Uh, Two, from DCD files, it was noted that Slick's contacts with CIA were attempts to obtain funding from one of his schemes or institutes. There is no record of any official relationship between Slick and CIA. However, CIA had periodic contacts with him between January 1950 and October 1959. According to DCD files, Slick served in the U.S. Navy from 1942 to 1946. Theater unknown. What? Okay. Um, Since Slick was personally known to former director Dulles, this association may have developed during World War II. Um... Three, the French branch traced Mrs. Jerry Walsh with negative results. And that's it. It doesn't say what the allegations were. Um, yeah, we've had trouble I finding Googled, them. But like around Thomas Slick, Klaus Barbie, uh, and, uh, you know, his, uh, I guess, her, his secretary, Jerry Walsh. But uh, nothing, I could find nothing. Uh, yeah, and a, it's like very a... odd that the CIA itself, um, and it, by looking up the files that said that Slick served in the Navy from 42 to 46, same branch as H.W. Uh, Bush, um, they might have almost been in, like in the same class or just like a couple years apart, like it's, graduated uh, 38. I mean, he was personally known to Alan Dulles. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah and, I did but find like, how do you really... how do you know theater unknown? And the, and it says he this association they're they're knowing each other may have developed during World War Two, which makes it sound like uh, Slick was probably doing OSS stuff. Maybe. Um, maybe. Or, into, or O and I or something like that. Eventually, get embroiled with Carlton Kuhn, who was a very but yeah. I just wanted to read this a uh, quick Alan Dulles. Uh, little quote which is from an interview i guess he did with john chancellor about uh the cia uh yeah actually it's a kind of little funny thing he said as uh john chancellor says 
As far away as Tibet, where rebels fight the Chinese communists, there is CIA assistance. If it would benefit our side, the CIA would recruit the abominable snowman. And Alan Dulles uh, replies, you know, very seriously, I am not going into the Tibet situation because I would be going beyond what, what even I know about it. I do think there are times when supporting movements is one of the best ways of preventing communists from taking over. And that has to be done from time to time. And uh, John Chancellor then asks, uh, this is just a good quote, uh, Mr. Dulles, do the Russians have a CIA? And he replies, the KGB is one of the most sinister organizations that was ever organized. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And Thank uh, yeah, you, he Alan. asks, like, do they spend a lot more on this kind of activity than we do? And he goes, oh, they must. Uh, do, we have, do we have an application of morality in our activities that they don't? And he said, far more than they do, yes. Um, wow. And then, this is great. He goes, uh, someone asked could you talk more on that like you know explain how we have more morality and he goes well as, only as far as i know we don't engage in assassinations and kidnapping things of that kind as far as i know wow. we never have. wow 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 <laughs> uh, that's pretty good uh but anyway uh, so yeah, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> pretty weak but, um, argument there um, yeah uh but anyway so to go back to tom slick so yeah as you said he tried to get Life Magazine for some money, and uh, they offered him $25,000 up front for the rights to any photos he took of the monster. Uh, and they also separately approached Carlton Kuhn, who was a very sus guy who had previously been in the OSS, and he was an anthropologist uh, additionally, um, and he had actually done anthropologist work as like a, uh, anthropological work as a cover well, like uh, in uh, German-occupied Morocco. Um, and his anthropological work was extremely racist and controversial even for the time, uh and basically like he was into like multi-regional evolution kind of that mm -hmm. like different apes became different races and that's you know stuff like that okay. so like he uh -huh. was not of the like out of africa idea like that you know we all got, like all races are of a single he definitely thought that they were like pure racial types and like a real ontological status to races um and his whole abominable snowman thing was uh one can assume like a big part of that uh, but anyway, so Life Magazine approached Carlton Kuhn for his thoughts on organizing expedition that he would lead. At the same time, they asked him to keep an eye on Slick and his efforts. Kuhn agreed, and the magazine sent him to Kathmandu. In his autobiographies, Kuhn mentions little about this aspect of his work other than to say that my relationship with life was felicitous from start to finish. He referred to Tom Slick, the object of surveillance, as a very nice guy. The excellent correspondence from this period, however, show Kuhn had a different attitude in private towards the Yeti and Slick. Kuhn took life's offer quite seriously and began working at ideas and questions about how to mount an expedition to find a snowman, which in his notes he refers to as the, quote, high-altitude project. He made it clear that any such undertaking should be to photograph the creature only. If they came across a carcass, he, uh, they would take it, or should an emergency situation arise in which a creature had to be shot for defensive purposes, they would do so, but the primary aim had to be picture-taking. Uh, this is an interesting thing because... Uh, Later on, yeah, there's this whole... But, uh, anyway. Is that, uh, is that from that. the memo from the State Department? Um, no, this is just from uh, Brian Regal's uh, book that he was, uh, is, you know, talking about, uh, Kuhn. Uh, from the, the memo from... Which one? Memo? Oh, the one about the Yeti uh, in Nepal, like the... the yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that was one of the government documents mentioning the Yeti that uh, I did dig up. Um, that just yeah, sort of clarifies um, uh, how to treat a yeti. Yeah, I found it, a uh, I, I I found a really a, a sort of cringe but very informative article on Birth Movies Death from 2011 about Thomas Slick uh, and in an entry called the Badass Hall of Fame 
Um, I guess oh, he cool. was their badass of the week. Um, the Texas awesome. millionaire who convinced Jimmy Stewart to smuggle Yeti bones to America. That was another thing. He stole a yeah, finger he stole, like, off a of hand from, uh, from a, a relic. Yeah, yeah, uh, very cool. Yeah. He's also I, I I didn't quite realize this, but he he was from a Texas oil family. Um, yeah, he te- was a Texas Tom, oil millionaire. Yeah, yeah. Tom's like uh, senior was the king of the wildcatters, and yes, so exactly. it's very yeah. similar to Bush in so many ways. Um, yes. And, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess became hunting partners, um, big game hunting uh, partners of Jimmy Stewart. They became buddies and he convinced Jimmy Stewart, uh, I don't know, to help him steal <laughs> this finger um, when he was visiting uh, Nepal, right? Um, yes. He stole the finger and replaced uh, from... it with a human bone. Yes. Um, and I believe, yeah, what did they eventually determine, uh, that the hand was? I don't quite remember. Um, I mean, it, who knows it says it in really this was. article that analysis of the bones have been inconclusive with some thinking the hand belongs to a Neanderthal. Um, mm, yeah. yeah, later examinations of the Pangbush hand in person have quote debunked it, but the debunking is based on the fact that the examiners were looking at a mutilated relic with hoax parts. No one knew about the smuggling of the bones until the 1980s when Lauren Coleman wrote the first biography of Tom Slick. Uh, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries did an analysis in some of the tissue on the hand and came up inconclusive, but the yeah, publicity from the program <laughs> led to someone stealing the hand completely this time from the Lamissary. Um, hmm. and, uh, yeah, so I guess, uh, I guess after stealing the hand, he turned his attention to the, to the Sasquatch. But like before that, um, I guess we want to, uh, the whole thing well, with guess, Nepal, yeah. there, there, there's yeah. a whole like geopolitical thing going on with the Yeti in Nepal. And do you want to maybe read the thing from that state? Department well, yeah, memo? there was, uh, well, first let me just, uh, yeah, let me finish this, uh, thread, uh, thread with Carlton Kuhn. Cause this is kind of, uh, interesting. So I'll just read uh, this, I guess, again from uh, from Regal. The intelligence angle of the search for the Yeti is a complex and often contradictory one. In 1950 and again in 1951, Kuhn had been temporarily appointed as, quote, an unclassified scientific consultant to the CIA at a pay rate of $35 a day. This position allowed him to provide, quote, occasional guidance uh, on words blacked out, intelligence problems, particularly <laughs> on Arab states. He supplied this service during the research tour of North Africa he made for a book project. CIA records provided regarding Kuhn's career do not go beyond these days except for the records of a disability claim in the late 1970s. There seems to be no evidence that Kuhn worked, at least in any official paid position, for the CIA during the Thompson Exposition period. Uh, so, you know, Life's founder and nominal Kuhn sponsor, Henry Luce, however, had a reputation as an anti-communist. They all seem to be watching each other. Life may have simply wanted to make sure Slick did not scoop them on discovering the Yeti or sell his pictures to a competing magazine, or Luce may have worried over Slick's peace activism, which included trying to establish contacts in communist China over the Tibet issue. Mm. So there's obviously, like, I mean, the Soviets basically, they had done their own expeditions and such, Mm -hmm. uh, such as there was a trip in 1958, the Soviet Academy uh, of Science convinced the reports of the Yeti and other Central Asian snowmen had at least some merit, mainly because, like, the, you know, uh, Western expeditions had been searching for them. Uh, they were like, well, we better do so as well. But they uh, came up with nothing, really. And mm. so then they were like, they withdrew their support, and the Soviet press basically said, Soviet science has shown so snowmen's aren't real, and uh, so that, for that reason, it must be that the Western expeditions 
our thinly veiled spy activity and capitalist intrigues, um, which they definitely were, uh, at least mm-hmm. in part. Uh, and the Nepal memo, uh, that's one kind of interpretation of that uh, State Department uh, document about uh, the, the Yeti, because it kind of, uh, well, basically what they establish is they say, these are, uh, it's from 1959. Uh, it's from the American Embassy in Kathmandu. Um, mm-hmm. And it gives a reference to an embassy in New Delhi. And it's uh, the subject is regulation governing mountain climbing expeditions in Nepal relating to Yeti. There are at present three regulations applicable only to expeditions searching for the Yeti in Nepal. These regulations are to be observed in addition to the 15 clauses listed in mountaineering and scientific expeditions in Nepal. The three regulations are as followed. Uh, royalty of uh, 5,000 rubies Indian currency will have to be paid to His Majesty's government of Nepal for a permit to carry out an expedition in search of Yeti. Uh, I think I said rubies, like gems, but uh, rubies, obviously. In case Mm -hmm. Yeti is traced, it can be photographed or caught alive, but it must not be killed or shot at except in an emergency arising out of self-defense. All photographs taken of the animal, the creature itself, if captured alive or dead, must be surrendered to the government of Nepal at the earliest time. News and reports throwing light on the actual existence of the creature must be submitted to the government of Nepal as soon as they are available and must not in any way be given out to the press or reporters for publicity without the permission of the government of Nepal. And one way of interpreting this is that they were it was kind of a gesture of recognizing the sovereignty of Nepal uh, and that then, you know, it wasn't under the authority of China um, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, of any communist power. But I feel like also they probably just did actually want to regulate this because I think that people really hadn't reached any definite conclusions about the reality of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that was uh, something that they they had uh, th- uh, talked about. So, yeah, a lot of these guys who were involved, including like uh, George Agagino, he was someone who was also uh, an OSS, like literally everyone was involved. I think that Brian Regal even says at one point, uh, in this book, uh, when he's sort of summarizing the uh, intelligence connections around this, um, he said, uh, uh, the details are murky, but it seems clear that at the very least, a Western intelligence element existed alongside the search for the Yeti. The mixture of cloak and dagger spy work with anomalous primate research seems almost comical in its unfolding. It raises the question, who was not working for the CIA or British <laughs> intelligence in this operation? <laughs> Carlton Kuhn spied on Tom Slick, who may have been a spy himself. Kuhn worked with Slick, but did not trust him, nor did he care for Peter Byrne, another alleged agent. Kuhn told fellow spy George Higino to watch himself around Slick, and Higino heartily agreed. Did Carlton Kuhn do anything in Asia besides hunt monsters? As with any study of intelligence operations, the hidden motives, demagoguery, secret documents, sealed archives, and the fog of the Cold War make it difficult to be sure just what happened until more official documents are made available. To add one last entry to the story, this author received an interesting reply to attempts to procure Freedom of Information Act requests from the United States government over this issue. The CIA supplied once-classified documents on the intelligence work of Dylan Ripley, Carlton Kuhn, and others. Whenever I made a search term request, they happily gave me what they had or requested further information to help them make, more, uh, make a more thorough search, then sent that material along. When I made requests for information they did not have, I received almost apologetic letters stating that they did not have any materials on that topic. When I made a request using the search terms Yeti and Abominable Snowman, however, they did not say they had no such materials. The terse and cryptic reply stated, The mission of the Central Intelligence Agency is primarily concerned with the collection of foreign intelligence matters that affect the national security of the United States. Therefore, we must decline to process your request. 
This suggests they have documents on these topics, but they are considered national security, so the information will not be released. Ivan Sanderson's ranting about the importance of getting the Yeti before the Soviets may have had some basis after all. <laughs> uh, wow, so, yeah. So they, yes. they were invested. Um, they were definitely invested. And I did come across something else. Like, I definitely looked, like, right away, the first thing I did uh, in terms of, like, getting ready for this episode was try to see, like, what documents have been declassified about any kind of... Uh, you know, government Bigfoot statements by, like, the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did find, like, you know, the FBI, I guess, uh, pretty recently, like, in 2019 or something, they declassified some investigation they had done actually for P at Peter Burns' request into, like, some hair samples. And they came up that it was, like, a, you know, a deer or something, you know. Uh, <laughs> but they had, like, analyzed it. And, I mean, of course, like, you know, if they have anything else that suggests otherwise, like, they wouldn't release it. Um, mm -hmm. although, but I did, but I did also find this other weird reference. I couldn't track down the actual document. That's the problem. But I was reading this book by Nick Redfern, um, mm -hmm. called like true real life monsters. It's like true stories of real life monsters. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's in a chapter about like animal ghosts. And he's talking about, uh, this memo, which is like, uh, it was called like, uh, Soviet and Czechoslovakian. Uh, Paris Psychological Studies mm -hmm. um, by uh, Louis Mayer and Lamoth. I forget the first name of the guy. But uh, so there's this one part where they're talking about the different parapsychological experiments they've done. Uh, and he describes that there is this guy, uh, Pavel Namov. Yeah, I think it was Pavel Namov. Anyway, Namov, who had done this experiment where uh, scientists placed baby rabbits on a submarine and they kept the mother rabbit in a laboratory on shore and implanted electrodes in her brain. And then when the submarine was submerged, assistants killed the rabbits one by one. What and they the measured fuck? that at each yeah. <laughs> so they measured that at each precise moment of death, the mother rabbit's brain produced detectable and recordable reactions. So oh. they're apparently, according to this author, so this memo circulated, you can actually look up the memo itself. Uh -huh. You know, it's a uh, like the CIA released a copy. It was a DIA memo. Okay. And the CIA released a copy and the DIA released a copy. So you can see two copies in the CIA reading room. But this guy, Nick Redfern, said that in 2007, the NSA declassified another copy of the memo. Mm -hmm. And there was a brief handwritten note under this part about the rabbits that said, A better understanding of Namov's work might make our Bigfoot archives clearer. Can Wenner look into this further? That's what Nick Redfern says. Ooh, I looked whoa. around for this copy. Yeah, right? I looked around for this, uh, and I could not find this copy of the memo. So, like, maybe this dude is, like, a complete hack and just, like, is making stuff up. But I don't honestly think that—I tend to doubt that he just invented this. But I could not find this copy of the memo. I looked around for it. I even went on Bigfoot Reddit and yeah. asked, like, you know, uh, can anyone find this? Uh, someone <laughs> downvoted me and, like, wow. hello, excuse me. Uh, it's so annoying because like what okay. they're upvoting is like I made a Bigfoot coffee mug and like stuff like that. Like I'm you, you know, I know. I, I'm participating in capitalism through my fetishization of this wild creature that doesn't participate <laughs> in capitalism. Like, but anyway, uh, so uh, well, anyway, well, okay. So wait, to unpack that real quick in terms of uh, the implications of that research. Uh, what do you think that they were trying to figure out? It's if there was a literally telepathic link between all I know, I'm not, uh, I, you know, uh, on the base level, assuming that this does exist and that like this guy didn't invent it, which I do kind of tend to doubt because like, you know, if you're going to make stuff up, 
this guy's one of the more like above board research people and it seems i don't know uh, i mean people can look into it like uh uh you know i think that if you did more rigorous research and like maybe if covid weren't going on and we weren't confined to being online or like if we have access actual paper files maybe it'll be different but mm-hmm. uh or maybe the nsa like you know at first they were releasing it because they were like oh the cia already leaked this you know who cares like everyone knows what's in it it's just some old mk ultra document or whatever yeah. uh and then they realize like oh oops like there's this little marginal note that we didn't see that mentions mm-hmm. our bigfoot archives uh we better pull this uh off but Anyway, but I guess yeah, like so what do you what do you think the, like they how do you think they were gonna apply that rabbit experiment to whatever they had on Bigfoot? It must be something to do with Bigfoot being telepathic. <laughs> it must be that like because that's about animal telepathy, right? So it yeah, must be something yeah. to do with that. Like yeah, or it has you know to be. unless Bigfoot is the code name for something, some uh, yeah. investigations well, they did it, into you know, animal actually, telepathy. Actually, it's really interesting you say. Uh, that especially with the the prevalence which i'll admit i didn't fully i think appreciate like the telepathic aspect of like the whole bigfoot lore um i was just doing a little looking up into like thomas slick and so he founded a number of uh non-profit scientific foundations in the 1950s maybe one of the most well-known ones was called the mind science foundation uh, and these were all headquartered in san antonio texas and just typing in to google mind science foundation cia gives you an, an absolute treasure trove of declassified documents uh from ca.gov uh including uh an experiment to test apparent remote action effects on electrodermal activity, uh, co-written by William Broad of the Mind Science Foundation and G. Mm. Scott Hubbard of SRI International in 1986. We have uh, uh, several others, like psychic process, energy transfer, and things that go bump in the night, uh, representative U.S. research institutes involved in psychoenergetic research, uh, Mind Science Foundation San Antonio is listed. Um, psychic powers, what are the odds? The mind over machines. Uh, these all mention the Mind Science Foundation, uh, which uh, which weirdly that like badass of the week article uh, said <laughs> it tipped me off to accidentally. Even though it said that after um, Thomas Slick's death, even the Mind Science Foundation got a little less paranormal and a little more conventional in its consciousness research. Well, all those articles are like from the 1980s, so like clearly they were like deeply involved in ESP remote viewing psychoenergetic like cia research going into the 1980s and going back to the 1950s and this was all started by a guy who's obsessed with finding yetis and sasquatch so now i'm sort of almost starting to get like just how you know we've entertained this hypothesis that maybe a lot of the esp remote viewing stuff at sri was a cover for building the internet what is this like per if I'm being, you know, a skeptic, an adventurous skeptic here, what kind of telepathic research is the Bigfoot lore covering up, perhaps? Um, and what would be, yeah. I don't know, it's like, it the is... Real, like, it would be very helpful to figure out who Wenner is, because he does says, can Wenner look into this further? That's like, you know, in the note, apparently, mm-hmm. it asks, can Wenner look into this? I don't know who Wenner... Uh, if that's like a real be. CIA analyst, we probably won't, like, find out. Well, one thing that did occur identity. to me, uh, one thing that did occur to me, and this probably isn't the case, but one thing that did occur to me was that in handwriting, sometimes a lowercase r can look like an n, 
So, Wenner, W-E-N-N-E-R, uh, could be Werner, W-R. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. Okay, but that's actually. It would have actually... to be a misspelling in that case. But, Wait, but yeah, you, haven't seen, you haven't seen have the actual handwriting of it. That's why I okay. want to see Yeah, exactly. But I could not find it. I asked some Bigfoot rant and they downloaded me, so I don't know. Uh, I, maybe someone will listen to this at some I point. Will, okay, to just help. just to touch uh, on that real quickly, because this all started with us talking about uh, this bizarre memo about Klaus Barbie and Thomas Slick being uh, homies, you know, being uh, mm-hmm. associated with one another. But I did find um, in another uh, little uh, in the Texas State Historical Association, and their bio of him, they do kind of mention in passing, or actually, no, sorry, it is in, like, the Badass article, um, <laughs> that it just happens to say that after graduating from college, Slick worked on expanding the family business. He and his brother established one of the first cargo air freight services. Let's uh, get an Air America vibes. And he began buying up mineral mining operations in South America. And then he started his, quote, scientific philanthropy right after that, built the, the started the Southwest Research Institute, one of the biggest R&D-focused scientific nonprofits in the country, and also started the Mind Science uh, Foundation, and he, which he became interested in when traveling in India. He met a man who could seemingly levitate and teleport himself. Um, but anyway, so the, the thing that jumped out with me at that is – uh, began buying up mineral mining operations in South America because mm. especially at the time that even though he had been dead for 20 years the time that CIA memo was written in 1983 I believe uh, Klaus Barbie was serving as an advisor um, to uh, Bolivian president uh, Hugo Banzer the like right wing fascist uh, military uh, dictator um, uh, who I, I think it was him who was in power. Yeah. Um, in 19, oh, actually, no, it was in 1978, um, where there was like the cocaine coup in Bolivia and Klaus Barbie, um, according to people like Mike Levine, we talked about on Smuggler's Blues, uh, basically Klaus Barbie was kind of working as a contract agent of the CIA and then was also um, serving as a military advisor and an economic advisor to um, the right-wing like military junta that took over Bolivia. And he is alleged to have basically been instrumental in setting up like a modern, almost like German industrial cartel, cartelification of cocaine production in Bolivia. And uh, presumably this business model spread to Colombia shortly thereafter and sort of coalesced into like the Pablo Escobar drug cartel um, Mm -hmm. and like systematized like the mass production of cocaine, which, of course, would come in handy in the 80s. But anyways, just kind of interesting that he was poking around South America with. Uh, Klaus Barbie, who was also floating around South America, and Thomas Thomas Slick also did had some episodes in British Guiana, which eventually would be you know Jonestown, all kinds of strange. Uh, yeah, there were pil- that there memo were... is very strange. I just want to know what Jerry Walsh said. Again, there's a lot of missing pieces here. Where it's like, did she say that Klaus Barbie and Tom Slick were connected through the CIA? She must have, because otherwise it wouldn't have been relevant to them. I would imagine it would have to be, because I mean, yeah. if you look at like the milieu of like his scientific research and yeah. his friendship with Alan Dulles, like and, yeah, he he seems to be part of this like international CIA, underground like, Reich yeah. kind of network. For sure. 
Yeah. Um, same as Bush and and yeah and right. Dulles and everything. And interestingly, like I looked up the the Mind Science Foundation is still around today, and now one of the programs on their website is like exploring like brain implants <laughs> uh, huh. like, like neuralink type stuff on the rabbit i guess i mean yeah as uh k waune lapsaris uh master of science uh author of the sasquatch people on their inter- interdimensional connection said you know they are the ultimate spies if you will uh <laughs> you know they're incredible mind readers these forest giants so wow uh, wow yeah it makes sense yeah we found um, ourselves in these thorny uh yeah, in this very yeah. thorny place again um, of all these these ops like kind of converging on each other, but now we can throw Bigfoot into the mix. be a good segue to the uh missing 411 type stuff okay because that's another funny kind of wrinkle to all this is that well when you get to the bigfoot cover-up stuff because that's like what uh you know i feel like the main thrust of a lot of that stuff is but like the yeah like uh because what you know is the uh involvement here it's funny i was kind of mentioning before we started recording that like in a lot of these like uh bigfoot related conspiracy theories it's funny uh how it's like kind of uh a uh sort of uh recursion or like a miniature scale version of the other conspiracies because like instead of like the fbi or the nsa being the main villains so is it the national park service or or whatever you know (laughs) fish and wildlife yeah yeah, the bureau of fish and wildlife yeah, it's interesting that whole that FBI thing, because so I will say this, the Army Corps of Engineers, I did find they came out with a document where they were sort of talking about Bigfoot as a speculative uh, creature, you know, something to consider uh, in its reference in some of their and their materials. And they do say that, uh, you know, the FBI has these hairs. In fact, I think that it was even. Uh, David Politis, the missing 411 guy in his book, who uh, made a note of that, that that brought it to my attention. Um, and uh, yeah, let me uh, look up the uh, the Hoopa Bigfoot, because uh, I think that's where he, he talks about it. The Hoopa Project, mm-hmm. Bigfoot Encounters in California. Okay. Um, yeah, you might be interested in that book. But uh, yeah, of course. But uh, anyway, so... He talks about how, um, 
you know, there's an uh, Army Corps of Engineers atlas that they put out in 1975, same year as the uh, that memo uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, that um, so, uh, Soviet and Czechoslovakian uh, parapsychological discoveries. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, the very existence of Sasquatch, or Bigfoot as it is sometimes known, is hotly disputed. Some profess to be open-minded about the matter, although stating that not one piece of evidence will withstand serious scientific scrutiny. Others, because of a particular incident or totality of reports over the years, are convinced that Sasquatch is a reality. Alleged Sasquatch hair samples inspected by FBI laboratories resulted in the conclusion that no such hair exists on any human or presently known animal for which such data are available. So that completely contradicts what the FBI said in the same year about Peter Byrne to Peter Byrne. I guess maybe it was 1977 Mm -hmm. because there are FBI documents that they disclosed uh, that you can read online if you look up FBI Bigfoot documents. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll we'll put them in the show notes too. But yeah, Peter Byrne wrote to them in 1976 uh, and he said, I have received your letter. uh, Oh, they wrote back to him. I received your letter of November 24th requesting an FBI laboratory analysis of 15 unidentified hairs and tissues. Uh, The FBI laboratory conducts examinations primarily of physical evidence for law enforcement agencies in connection with criminal investigations. Occasionally on a case-by-case basis in the interest of research and scientific inquiry, we make exceptions to this general policy. With this understanding, we will examine the hairs and tissue mentioned in your letter. And what ultimately this leads to is that they say it's a deer. But (laughs) I guess maybe the Army Corps of Engineers was wrong about that. But it's weird that they, there is that sort of contradiction where mm-hmm. they sort of say no such hair exists. Maybe they didn't like, you know, no such uh, uh, hair exists in any human or presently known animal for which such data. Maybe deer data wasn't available at, mm-hmm. uh, in 1975 and then it became available in 1976. Or maybe they heard that it was. But it's weird. But anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, there is that like little weird contradiction. But anyway, so. Uh, yeah, there was that. There's some of the, the you know, oh, the, the speculative. Yeah. What you do say? you, did you want to mention for a minute, uh, talk about Vietnam because. Oh both, yeah. There both, was an there, there were reports on both sides yeah. of the, of the Vietnam war from both American soldiers and North Vietnamese and, um, right. And yes. Viet Cong it was kind of a giant fighters. Kandahar type situation as well, but it was not a giant. It was like a normal sized hairy person it was much more it sounded a little bit more like an almasti in terms of yeah being yeah. like maybe about five feet tall and uh i guess it was a little bit the, there was a lot of confusion because there also were these apes that lived. this is particularly kind of along like the ho chi minh trail and the border lands the border regions between uh laos and cambodia that are incredibly remote where there were these apes that were known sometimes to uh, or at least there was one patrol of like rangers that got attacked by a gang of apes that started throwing rocks at them. And nice. so they started, <laughs> I know, but comrade apes, like for sure, <laughs> they were down, they were down with uncle Ho and <clears throat> they, uh, they started calling them rock apes and they mm-hmm. sort of knew the Americans learned to kind of like stay away from them. But then I don't know, there was, uh, an allegation that, they got into it's interesting yeah every time they run into the you know american soldiers they just attack them immediately (laughs) it's like maybe they really do know um yeah maybe they do i guess uh where is trying to find that article that you found about the u.s marines it's from wearemighty.com i think is where uh I, i have it i'll put it in the in the discord uh here yeah um okay but, uh, yeah. yeah um <clears throat> the, the story of the u.s troops who's thought 
they saw Bigfoot. Um, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, this sounds very giant of Kandahar. Brow. This was no rock ape. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Right. The and this and so I I wrote down the I, what I think uh, is the phonetic pronunciation of this term is like the noitsung, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, the. I forget what it translates to, but it's basically their version of like Bigfoot Almasti is like the Noitsung. And uh, I guess, uh, yeah, it was a, a off told tale in the area. I guess a army sergeant Thomas Jenkins also reported that his platoon was attacked. Okay. No, well, he was attacked by the apes throwing stones. Um, mm-hmm. And this this jumped out at me. is very interesting. That toward the end of the war, Viet Cong and NVA soldiers reported so many sightings of the reddish-brown hair-covered Noi Tung, the North Vietnamese Communist Party Secretariat ordered scientists to investigate. And so this very famous uh, Dr. Vo Kui, uh, who is a, a highly eminent ornithologist and zoologist uh, from Hanoi, um, was actually uh, recruited to lead like a 1974 exhibition, I think, you know, endorsed by his good friend, General Jop, to basically track down uh, this creature and find out if, you know, there was anything uh, to it. And uh, I guess he found a lot of, um, he found some interesting footprints. And then there was also a... I for, he claimed to have talked to an American soldier. I don't know under what context during the war he talked to American soldiers, but they said that they had killed this kind of um, Noitung uh, kind of creature and like flown it off in a helicopter. And uh, wow. I think well, in Vietnam, like similar again, similar to the giant of Kandahar as well. Very similar, uh, yeah, yes. and. Um, yeah, and uh, in 1982, another Vietnamese scientist, Tran Hong Viet, discovered more footprints. And, you know, uh, I'm looking at a cast of it here. It's pretty big, uh, pretty big <laughs> foot. Um, um, and, uh, yeah, so I think, uh, and you know, I think uh, he didn't win a Nobel Prize, but, you know, he's like a highly respected um, uh, Vauquie was a highly respected scientist. So once again, the communists a little ahead of the curve on their Bigfoot. They definitely, um, yeah, there definitely seemed to, I could see why you would think that they were ahead on the Sasquatch front. Um, they weren't ahead that, enough because, uh, you know, I guess whatever psychic advantages that would have conveyed, uh, it seems like the United States got those. Yeah, by the end I guess. Of it. Well, probably the Patterson Gimlin film was really what turned the tide. Cause once we had that, that really shifted everything because it seems like before the Patterson Gimlin film, the Yeti was the big star. You know, everyone was all about going to Nepal. But then once we had that movie, it was all about Bigfoot. Maybe I guess it did. That's I mean, kind of the, an op, maybe that was kind of an op. Oh, uh, maybe wow. there was a you know, uh, hmm. it kind of like going maybe like going to the moon. Like uh, if you can't yeah. do it for real, then make it look like we did it, and then yeah. take all the attention. Huh. Yeah, I really they, can't make up my wow. mind about that. Like, they, that movie is so weird because, for one, like, okay, people have said that Patterson and Gimlin didn't, like, you know, one of the main, uh, you know, arguments against them making a hoax is that they're just not, like, people who know them say, like, they're just not these kind of devious people. And also, like, you know, people have analyzed the movie and they do have trouble. Like, it does seem that the sophistication of this is at a level where 
Like, you know, if you look at it carefully, I'm sounding kind of crazy, but if you look at it carefully, like, there's abrasions. It doesn't, it looks like a very, very okay. high quality suit. You, you know, know, like, if it's a monkey suit, yeah. it's, like, pretty high quality. You know, it does like, look like uh, a high quality suit. It, it almost, I mean, you could almost make a, a kind of a comparison to like the Zabruder film where there's certain dimensions of it that look like they've been tampered with. And many people have alleged that like, like there was a little bit of uh, kind of primitive smudging done to make it look like there was like an exit wound on the front of his forehead when he gets shot, even though he gets flung backwards. Right. And it's well, obvious. Yeah, as I like, mentioned, there is that conspiracy theory that these guys were involved in some kind of Bigfoot massacre and like the footage actually like, you know, showed these Bigfoot getting like shot and gunned down. Like, uh, but yeah, that's like a wow. whole thing. Like M- some dude named NK Davis, I guess made a big splash in the Bigfoot community. He was mostly rejected because, uh-huh. uh, because I mean, it's kind of wacky, but yeah, that's like one of those big, like Bigfoot massacre theories. Uh, in addition to the Mount St. Helens, you know, dead Bigfoot cover up one, there's also the Bluff Creek Massacre theory, which is mm-hmm. that, you know, this is actually like, a, you know, and the Bigfoot that you see in the video is like limping away with like, you know, having been shot or whatever. Um, wow. But yeah, like, well, maybe what that whatever that guy picked up on, maybe there is something off about that about that film. I don't know, because it is weird how people can't quite like rule it out. I haven't been able to f- definitively prove that it's someone in a suit or that it's fake. You know, I'm not you saying you'd be able to see. Real, yeah. But like i mean i would say that like if it's a fake like it is a suspiciously good one you know what i mean mm-hmm. like so maybe uh like it a is professional like a pro- maybe thing. uh yeah. maybe they you know they did it at lookout mountain air force base mm. you know uh, they, 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 or maybe they, 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 they knew these dudes were going to look for a sasquatch and so then they had like someone uh-huh. you know mm. in this highly you know sophisticated suit i mean people are that would make sense sophisticated because it's like you know i mean it looks kind of absurd but i don't know people like you know the way that it walks like you know the movement of the arms people have like analyzed the gate and they can't really say i mean i don't know like i really don't know because i'm not a gate expert so maybe i sound (laughs) like really stupid right now saying that like you know but why can't someone i mean maybe by the normal standards of people uh you know it has been debunked but I just like uh and like uh I'm just asking for too much in terms of like this is definitive debunking like someone showing a zipper or whatever but uh-huh. I don't know I'm just saying I'm just saying like uh yeah so and and I mean the, the, is that the only famous video of like that I and you know that like for real is is Bigfoot um as opposed to like a grainy footage of some object off in the distance. And they're like, that's Bigfoot. You know what I mean? Like it's definitely the best and most famous video of Bigfoot. Like, you know, uh, unmistakably in that video, if it's either a guy in a suit or it's Bigfoot, you know, like, uh, those are the only two options. I mean, yeah, I'm watching, I'm watching his gate right now and I'm not convinced that it is not a person in some kind of gorilla costume. Um, yeah, Just, I don't uh, know. Intuitively, it's a good costume, but I'm not it. It doesn't feel uh, like what about the arm swing? You know, the arm swing like uh, uh, it's a, it, I mean, know? it's a little gorilla like, but I feel like if you were maybe he was doing a what like, uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it, it could be a person. It, it, it could be a person, I would think. But there were like experiments where they try to replicate this and like they weren't 100% successful. I guess you could never truly replicate the 
you know, gate of a particular person. Maybe there's some idiosyncrasies. I really am completely ignorant. So like I'm talking about yeah. this in terms of I like, mean, what I'm, I know. I'm also watching like a 4K. I'm watching a kind of 4K like stabilized, you know, digitally stabilized version. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, I mean, that has its own jiggly uh, artifacts with it. But at the same time, like it does seem... Eh, I mean, yeah, he's just walking. He's just walking and kind of swinging his arms a little bit. He looks back, you know. I think that it could be... If you think of all the things that, like... I think all this, like, CIA-connected stuff is fascinating because I never really uh, was aware that there was, like, these people were so spooked up, all these people that were big, yeah. big Bigfoot Yeti advocates. Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah. I thought these worlds were somewhat separate. Like you said, no. it, it seems like in the Bigfoot community, but these, of course, you know, these are, like, the common folk that love Bigfoot yeah, but and are obsessed with Yeah, there was a shift it. kind of around the time of this movie because this was something that really, like, you know, it was a phenomenon. It created, uh-huh. like, a, a mania in American popular culture that created the idea of Bigfoot as we know it today, was uh-huh. this movie. Uh-huh. You know, so, yeah. like, and prior to that, there had been much more em- emphasis on this cult. Like, it created the shift around, like, you know, between sort of the Cold War thing, like, with a more of a focus maybe on the Tibet, Mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, what you know, the, the the more familiar contemporary paradigm around Bigfoot, which is like environmentalism. You know, sort of like yeah. the, it was in obviously the the Pacific uh, coast. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, twenty five lying uh, twenty five logging road miles northwest of Orlean, California, mm-hmm. uh, in Del Norte County. Okay. Um, yeah, pretty so, rural. Yeah. Pretty. I mean, honestly, there's so much space in Northern California of like forest and stuff that it does make absolute sense that a Bigfoot <laughs> would hide out there because it's not very populated. Uh, and that's definitely you know. his key. Yeah, his key. Uh, his main hideout, like that uh, people suggest. Uh, but it, yeah, it did kind of change the conversation and uh, it transformed the cultural phenomenon uh, or created in a way the cultural phenomenon of Bigfoot uh, in a new, in a new way. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the Bigfoot as we know it is defined very much by this, this 1967 movie. Yes. Um, but there haven't and, been subsequent ones that are kind of anywhere. Yeah. I saw, I, I saw, and on we're YouTube at the here, point now, you know, like with every passing year, the idea that this is just some animal that was out there became more and more untenable. And, yeah. uh, like at, at this point we have to at least say, that there's a massive cover-up, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if, like, there is this creature out there, like, that is normal, like, you know, just a normal ape that behaves, like, the way that monkeys do, and it doesn't have some kind of, like, you know, interdimensional component to it, uh-huh. then there's a massive cover-up being perpetrated, not only by Bigfoot itself, but by the government as well. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and I don't yeah, know, I mean, is it because like, of the, the reasons that they cited for their fear of, you know, the Sasquatch gap with the Soviets, that they would be able to undermine religion and yeah, or, all these things? Uh, yeah, or uh, one of the uh, main angles people take in terms of the cover-up and the Bigfoot community is they talk about the logging industry, <laughs> the impact on the logging industry. And I mean, there is also really? the aspect of, yeah. it's uh, uh, interesting to think yes, about. Yes. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, the logging and timber industry and, like, stuff like that. Uh, but uh, I actually listened to one really funny, um, like, uh, podcast about a Bigfoot cover-up. Um, like, it was a Bigfoot podcast, and they did an episode about the, the possibility of a cover-up. They talked about some NSA document having to do with Bigfoot that I also couldn't find, but I was more liable to believe that they just made that up or misremembered it or something. 
Uh, and the guy on that, there was a guy on that who was like a big libertarian guy, and he was basically taking the opposite tack with it, where he was like, they're gonna bring out Bigfoot, and then they're gonna like destroy our freedoms, like to to hunt and log, you know, like uh, just like they did with the spotted owl, you know, like, oh, the spotted no. owl was endangered, but it wasn't, you know, like uh, and he was up, he was really, you know, he was really getting like himself uh, worked up over the idea that like they were gonna use Bigfoot to take away our freedoms and yeah it was it's like funny. like uh, Greta Thunberg yeah. and Bigfoot are gonna go on Ellen. Yeah and exactly like, like you're taking you. away my dreams <laughs> yeah like yeah like, uh, you've stolen my my Bigfoothood you know oh, uh, God yeah, yeah you but, could see um, it as kind of a it's probably not as viable as like a UFO coming down and doing something well, similar. Also like uh, if the spotted owl was like a dry run for Bigfoot disclosure, uh like it's time. You know, to disclose. Like, it seems like their tact has been cover up. Like, they're definitely, if, like, you know, this is just some normal animal out there, they're, they've got to be covering it up. But yeah, I mean, I totally could believe that it is, uh, a, I totally could believe that it's a dude in the suit. Uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, if you look up some of the studies that have been done this, and maybe it's biased because, like, people who do this stuff, like, kind of want to believe and, like, the things that really, you know, are like, no, this is bullshit, like, are kind of suppressed or, like, not as interesting or exciting. But there are, uh, you know, people who have said, like, at the very least, it's, like, a very, like, it's a trained actor or something, you know? Um, yeah, it's a professional, like, uh, you know? And I think we should always, like, I think I'm glad that we haven't, we didn't really, we barely brought up the, the 1967 video until now very deep into it because we've already established that there is like a broad transcultural interest in yetis and Bigfoot, et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. so many things going on throughout um, the 20th century, even these superpowers were kind of like interested in this issue to some extent. And so um, even if this video is a hundred percent fraudulent and is like, mm-hmm we can't discount the idea that it's like a psyop like it, it doesn't it shouldn't necessarily kind of um define everything about the entire vast subject of mm. bigfoot if this video is fake instead maybe we look at it more as uh yes you know why was Absolutely it faked not. and by whom and i definitely think that like yeah i mean i guess i really if i try to reconcile my beliefs i guess i'm kind of trying to defend the video at this point but you know i won't say 100 percent being <laughs> like you know like uh, i mean if i really try to reconcile my beliefs like i really think that th- whatever reality bigfoot has it has a similar reality to grays or so, you know like that's some kind of there is some kind of like uh um esoteric or occult component to it some kind of like supernal uh you know, it's a, it's a gin, you know, yeah, like, like, I just like, gin. I, it's I a gin. Um, but yeah, or, or it's a, or it's Al Jassasa or something, you know, like, uh, it's something like that, or it's Kane wandering, uh, the earth. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to put Kane like kind of low on the list of probability. Uh, yeah. Or it's the old hunter. I don't know, but it's, uh, yeah, something like that. You know, it's, uh, I don't know if it's just like a normal, like, uh, relic hominid or ape or something. Uh, uh-huh. but you know, if I really like interrogate, uh, try to bring my beliefs into harmony, I'm kind of forced to, uh, uh, you know, confront the idea that this is not real, but I do feel like people have said that this hoax is pretty impressive for what it is, you know? So maybe it is like a professional job. I think that's an interesting mm-hmm. angle. Yeah. I, I would know? almost put it up there with kind of like maybe like crop circles, you know, in terms of like, even if somebody's hoaxing, like that's a pretty, um, yeah, it was a pretty impressive hoax, you know, to like go on an entire cornfield and make these uh, 
just going over some of the analogies on Wikipedia, it does seem to be, like, the conclusion that, you know, uh, people say, like, oh, you know, it's impossible to determine, like, due to the poor image quality, like, if it's human or not, um, but, uh, you know, it, uh, it is not unreasonable to suggest that it's better than some of the tackier monster outfits that were on TV at the time, you know, it is like people calling it like a, a masterpiece hoax, you know, uh, that is true. If, if we it think is about, a man in an yeah. ape suit, it's a very good one, a job that would take <laughs> a lot of time and money to produce. Um, we could try faking it, but it would have to create a completely new system of artificial muscles and find an actor who could be trained to walk like that. It might be done, but we would have to say it would be almost impossible. That's what the Universal Studios special effects department apparently said, according to Wikipedia. But, you uh-huh. know, I think yeah. it's interesting, uh, you know. No, th- that's a good point, because, like, you know, like, monsters like that, you know, if we think about monster makeup, movies like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist, which is, like, five or six years after this, like, it, it kind of feels more dated than this gorilla costume looks like. Yeah, I mean, even the Satan suit in Rosemary's Baby, like, they wouldn't show... They had to also use crappy camera work to, like, uh-huh. conceal. It was probably... Yeah. Uh, according Not to Greg Long... Uh, Greg Long quotes Peter Byrne and says that, you know, he went to Disney in 1972, and he showed this to Disney Chief of Animation and Four Assistants, and they praised it as a beautiful piece of work, although they said it must have been shot in a studio. Uh, when Byrne told them that it had been shot in the woods of Northern California, they shook their heads and walked away. <laughs> Mm. Uh, unless this was i mean peter byrne was maybe spooked up a little bit too so do we have like i mean have they gone back to the exact location where the big i assume people must have like gone back to this location or are they like we can't remember exactly where it was um no they they know exactly where it was okay Um, okay so they've been pointed out so we could rule out that it wasn't you know shot in like the the hollywood hills outside of lookout mountain air force base or something like that (laughs) no i'm pretty (laughs) sure that uh, i mean yeah no i'm pretty sure people have gone back to the exact spot uh okay yeah you know i mean people can shoot on the uh, were they like that because of the lighting like what was there uh um was it like that because of the lighting i don't know if it was because of the lighting or if they thought like there had to be a big around like a big makeup crew had to be there to like make this you know this this bigfoot man look absolutely Um, perfect and so yeah uh, yeah i don't know (laughs) or just that Um, they thought that's not real like this must be fake like you're trying to did they walk away because he was insisting this was actually bigfoot and not I an impressive yeah, show I guess reel now that we for to, like kind of hire me disney you know yeah i guess we try to pick uh the movie apart a little uh, pick the statement apart a little bit more than once it makes uh, sense uh, yeah. but uh i um, guess like uh i don't know why they thought it must be made in a studio maybe it was because of the lighting hmm, i don't know maybe i don't know uh, yeah it's, 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 there's I mean, a lot it, of angles the, to the, that. the background does seem a pretty indistinct you know like it's not necessarily like you could go to that spot and say like oh this is where it was shot and you wouldn't necessarily be like hey, wait a minute, that tree doesn't look like the right tree or, you know, I don't know. You'd probably be able to debunk uh, that pretty easily. At the same time, it, he is walking through kind of like a clearing, right? Yeah. So it's like not a completely remote area. It, it's kind of... Yeah. Open. Yeah, I... um. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, definitely it is kind of like... You know, really like good a visibility, creep, a creep considering. Bed. It's a creep yeah. bed. Yeah, it is pretty mm-hmm. good visibility. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's interesting that they, yeah, they would, they would make that remark that it must have been shot in a studio. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, 
Hmm. Yeah. Uh, he just, yeah, he walks. It's so man. I mean, it, it does capture the liminality that we talked about in the beginning of he's like. I mean, we must like he acknowledge has these, that it is, a, it is in some way an artistic masterpiece because we're still talking about it. No, it is. You and know? I'm just watching like, a loop of, of Bigfoot walking right now. Yeah, and it's, it's beautiful. Like, it is like, mesmerizing. It's entrancing. It's entrancing. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. Like, it's, it's so much like a human, but it has features that are so much it, like an ape. Yeah, and there's something like, like weird about the way that it moves. That's yeah. just like, you know, eerie and like just not quite yeah exactly it's like kind of ch- yeah it's it's interesting yeah so if constructed uh, a, a job well done i think like you yeah. know uh maybe like kenneth anger would be jealous um, yeah they call me sasquatch please check the watch this is bigfoot don't get it shook out in japan they call me godzilla up in africa king kong gorilla Michael Joe Jackson used to call me Thriller. All my enemies swear I'm Attila. Vietnam dead. Burn down your villa. Captain Crunch screams. Out in Oak Town, I'm a fucking pirate. Think I'm Rodney King? We can start a riot to a fat bitch. I'm a fucking diet. You a solitary. I'm peace and quiet. This a nightmare. Just to run away where the pimps be. Use a thirsty man. I'm so empty. At your funeral, no sympathy. They call me Sasquatch. Please check the watch. This is Bigfoot. Don't get it shook. Out in Japan, they call me Godzilla. Up in Africa, King Kong Gorilla. The encounters are terrifying. It was all hairy from head to toe. Thousands have reported seeing. I don't know how long we're at right now. Uh, we're at three. We're exactly at three hours. So uh, I feel like all right. There... Well, I think <laughs> I think that we should touch a little bit on. I well, I just will read this one thing from. Well, maybe we could do a missing four one one episode down the line. But just to like wrap up, uh, I just wanted to give a little bit of a taste of uh, this. Uh, you know, unsolved disappearances in uh, the Smoky Mountains. Okay. Uh, from David Polites. So this is because I think that like, you know, people might actually know of this like in the audience, you know, mm-hmm. uh, even if they're not big Bigfoot people, because I feel like this is one of the biggest thing that's come out of this kind of world. People might not necessarily know that it's come out of this world in a way, uh, because I feel like it has been a big splash. People might have even seen this on Hulu because there was a documentary that I noticed on Hulu or maybe going on the Internet called Missing 411, mm-hmm. which is about a case uh, involving... Uh, I think it was Dennis Martin uh, whose uh, case it, it was that the Missing 411 documentary uh, was about. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it's basically the idea of Missing 411 is that it's about like uh, these mysterious disappearances in national parks. And it's very interesting because David Polites, uh this dude, he, I feel like his work is, is creepy. It's well done. It's kind of made a splash in the general, like, conspiraverse in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the idea is that, like, there are these spooky, uh, you know, disappearances that happen in parks. And a lot of the time, you know, what will be, like, missing people will show up and they'll be, like, completely naked. You know, I've taken their shoes off, which kind of is similar huh. to what we Sounds talked about a little earlier. bit with the hypothermia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, and there's all kind of an implication that the park services or, uh, you know, the government isn't doing... Uh, a good job with this, uh, but it. there's been a lot of critiques where people say that 
you know, the disappearances aren't, you know, more than what you would expect. Yeah, so I think, like, I think you might actually find some of this stuff interesting, because another thing that it reminded me of, uh, some of these accounts are, uh, the, like, McMartin-type stuff. But anyway, uh, Mm. so, yeah, because a lot of these things are, like, kids disappearing, but... Yeah, so people have kind of analyzed this, and a lot of people have said, like, oh, well, you know, they don't, people don't really disappear more than you would think, and, uh, you know, what, if you go through the stories and, like, try to piece together what, uh, real, what theme really unites this stuff, uh, it's kind of seems that, uh, what really unites it is the idea that, uh, Bigfoot, like, could be responsible. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, there are some, uh, Here's a, like a, yeah, I'll try to find, uh, some good, um, like, uh, uh, spooky ones. There's one that refers to, like, a, yeah, this is interesting. This kind of reminds me a little bit. This is the Jackie Copeland disappearance. Um, Mm -hmm. and this is someone who, I guess, was two years old when it disappeared. So, you know, uh, uh, he writes, Jackie, his three sisters and parents went to a picnic at an oil company's property outside of Pleasantville. The family was socializing with others when Jackie's 70-year-old sister, sorry, seven-year-old sister, told their father that Jackie was gone. At 1 p.m., the family started to look for the boy and could not locate him. It was at this point that everyone at the picnic started to participate in the search for Jackie Copeland. In a very short period of time, the state police had arrived, and they called for a team of bloodhounds. The oil company called for an additional volunteer, for additional volunteer searchers until there were hundreds of people looking for the boy. It was evident by late in the evening that the bloodhounds could not pick up a scent or refused to search, and ground searchers were not having luck finding the boy. At 8 a.m. the morning following Jackie's disappearance, a man named Bevier, uh, this happened in the 50s, by the way, mm-hmm. was searching outside of the main area in a location where an oil repressuring plant was located. The area is completely surrounded by what many newspaper articles called, quote, impassable swamps. As Mr. Bevier and a crew of searchers were walking through the swamps, he accidentally saw Jackie looking around the side of a tree, almost peering. Bevier called his name, and Jackie answered. Jackie was found over two miles from the picnic and across swamps that were deemed impassable by search coordinators. Jackie was transported to the hospital where he was met by his family. After being examined by doctors, they stated that the boy had a number of scratches, but that he was in generally good health. An article in the Logansport Press dated May 17, 1950, had an interview with the Copelands and heard Jackie's rendition of what occurred during his night in the woods. The press wanted to hear how the boy got to his location in the swamp, what he had to drink and eat, and how he kept warm. Jackie first was asked why he left the picnic, and here is his quote. I saw something peering at, uh, well, uh, I guess this isn't his quote. It might be a quote from the article. Again, this guy, you know, uh, you got to take David Plyves a grain of salt. But anyway, so Mm -hmm. he saw something peering at him from behind a big tree. When he approached, the creature scampered into the brush. Jackie didn't explain anything more about leaving the picnic at that point. The article later explained more of what Jackie stated. He recounted in Child Talk his adventure in an awful blackness, peopled by a great throbbing giant and a tall, friendly tree and wild animals howling in the distance and the unfamiliar shouts of strangers prowling nearby. Mm. Um, okay. so, so that's interesting. Uh, he showed up like later and said that there was a great throbbing giant after he chased some creature into the, you know, this kind of gets into wow. that sort of territory where it's like, do we believe the children? Like, about what they're saying? Like, what's going on? You know, was I he... I see what you mean. I it, see what you mean, Was yeah. it Aquino's ancestor, you know, who took him <laughs> and, like, gave him, uh, like, a experimental LSD uh, from... Yeah, Kane. Was it know, Kane who... Uh, yeah. 
is um, mixed up in all this terrible stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, well, I, I guess you like, could rule out, probably rule out that these kids were given some kind of a psychiatric or you know, psychedelic drug by an adult. Um, so then, I don't know. Yeah, like, I mean, he was two, so, but what did uh, happen? Like, why did, how did two? he travel two miles? And why did someone who abducted him, uh, like, leave him? You know, what took him, like, you know... What I happened? guess you're yeah you're okay. It so if somebody if somebody abducted him, then I don't know that could have been a human being. Um, and then they just abandoned him in the swamp. Maybe when people started looking, they got scared and just left him. I don't know. And and like was, and also was why did person... you say it was a creature like a big black giant? Why like you know what like you know I don't know a big throbbing giant like a big throbbing. I, mean, I guess a lot of things might appear to be a giant to a Wait, kid. Wait, so but... th- this child was two. Yes, he was like, apparently two. Uh, just two, or like two and three quarters. I feel like it kind of matters. I, don't know. I feel like it matters a little bit at that age with your language skills and your ability to, you know, comprehend and express yes. like what you. That that's very young. That's like younger than McMartin, in ter- yeah. younger than Presidio. Well, the thing is, yeah, that's the thing where like you know, obviously, we're this guy is looking for something that Bigfoot uh, might have perpetuated, um, and. Like, uh, so a lot of the time when people describe a kind of creature or imply something, it's going to be young kids. But again, you could say the same thing about like, uh, you know, there are some that are by, uh, you know, uh, people who are a little, I don't know if he was two and three quarters. Well, not adults, but, uh, adults adults do not see, uh, besides the, the people who allegedly filmed Bigfoot in 1967. Well, adults, uh, well, adults definitely see Bigfoot. Yeah, no, adults see, I mean, and they see the Almasti for sure. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, uh, there were, there was one guy who was a Bigfoot abductee, uh, you know, other than that, I can't really think of other bigfoot abductees who like describe sort of the similar thing where they're taking there was one guy albert ostman who was a canadian prospector um in 1924 he claimed that he was kidnapped by a bunch of sasquatch uh and like a whole uh, a a whole group of them yes he was kept captive Mm. by them um for six days and uh they gave him sweet tasting grass huh well, um, I mean, he, it fits with the yes, Almasti. And pieces. Albert escaped ma- by making the large male Sasquatch groggy by feeding him some snuff. He did not tell a story for more than 24 years after it happened for fear of being thought of as crazy. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I feel like, again, we sh- probably should do a Missing 411 episode. And I also think, like, the, like, you know, we're got to do Bigfoot 2. There's also the Theodore Roosevelt-related Bigfoot story that uh we should get into like down the line but since we're over three hours but there's one more uh or like uh that like uh, i think is uh you know worth uh maybe so this one is uh from someone who i think that she might also have been young (laughs) <laughs> like, okay, okay. A really young child but uh you know and again like i don't 100 percent trust everything that this dude uh even like says because he you know uh might be like obviously he has like a pro bigfoot uh bias but sure there's someone else katie flynn i guess she was three but uh so she eventually was returned <laughs> 
Okay. She had a badly scratched face and hands. That was the extent of her injuries, right? Okay. So when Katie ba- got back to camp, Mrs. Flynn asked her why she didn't run away when she had the opportunity. Uh, the story was replicated. Uh, so here's Katie's response. Uh, it was replicated in the Ludington Daily in, in 1932. So this is a 1932 uh, story. Mm-hmm. Uh, or Well, this is retold in 1932, but I guess it happened in the 19th century in 1868. Mm-hmm. So okay. she said, a big dog came up to me, took me in his arms and walked away with me. Noting one of her shoes was missing, uh, the parents asked her where it was. The big dog ate it, she replied. Um, so what I guess she could have be, like gotten lost and become hypothermic and then like hallucinated that she saw some kind of big dog. But she did say that she was like cuddled by this. Big uh, dog. Well, what could it yeah. have been a bear? Why would a bear? Okay. So that's the thing. Like, uh, it must've either been like Bigfoot or nothing because I guess bears maybe could, uh, you know, maybe there are there st- like, are the stories of people being raised by wolves? They have a kernel of truth in them. Maybe. Because yeah. She, yeah. Yeah. Well, she claims that, uh, she'd played a little while in the sand when a big black thing came along and played with her. Then it held out its paw and she got hold of it and it had walked away with her just before dark, dark it had left her for a while and it came back. Its paw was full of wintergreen berries. The bear ate some of the berries and she ate some. Then it scraped a big pile of leaves close to her and lay down close to her during the night and tried to cover her with its body. So I don't know. Like, Wait, did David you just Polite say is, bear? Did you just say bear? Or yeah. Did you mean bear. to say dog? It was a bear. Well, she called it a dog, but, uh, you know, a big black thing came along and okay. then the daily news report is calling it a bear. Okay. Um, okay. but yeah, so it could be a bear. Uh, and that seems yeah. like, you know, obviously there's some kind of, I did read, uh, another thing. Speaking of the Bigfoot hair evidence that the FBI analyzed, uh-huh. I did read another report analyzing a bunch of Bigfoot hair samples where most of them were like, you know, uh, get not like, you know, abnormal animals, just like, you know, just deer or whatever, like, you know, bears, but they did find some that were fur from bears that are not found in the areas where the hair was acquired. Like they found like a polar bear uh, hair in the Himalayas or something. Or the closest match was for a polar bear um, hmm. in the, in the Himalayas or something. Yeah, that was another uh, you know interesting thing. But uh, yeah, there was also the whole Dennis Martin thing, which I think was the subject of the documentary that uh this came out i guess there was one called like missing the dennis martin case um that uh maybe was uh another another one and the missing 411 documentary maybe was about something different uh like a different missing child uh like um or maybe it was about a group but it kind of like yeah, I guess it was chronicles of similar disappearances of five children. Maybe he did touch on this, but this uh, story, I mean, his rendition of it was, uh, you know, a little bit interesting. But anyway, like, so this is a huge search. The Green Berets were called in to assist. Uh, mm-hmm. This kid went missing. The Green Berets were called in, um, and uh, you know, that seems eventually rare. this. Yeah, it is weird. Uh, this guy came forward, and David definitely David Pulley just makes a big deal about how, like, this is weird. Um, and uh, I guess they were playing hide-and-seek within their family, and then the kid went to go hide, and then he never appeared. Uh, and everyone was looking for him. You know, a bunch of volunteers showed up. It was a huge search, but there is, you know, no way to find him. 
Then David Polites makes a big deal out of this incident. So according to a July 21st, 1969 article in the Knoxville News Sentinel, the Harold Key family was visiting a region five to seven miles from where Dennis Martin disappeared the same day sometime between 4.30 and 5.30 p.m. The Key family was in the area downhill from where Dennis disappeared in a region known as Sea Branch Creek near Rowan's Creek in Katie's Cove. The Keys had asked park rangers where they could go to see a bear and were directed to that location. The family exited their car and walked one-half to three-fourths of a mile uphill when they heard an enormous, sickening scream. The group walked 200 additional yards, and Mr. Key's son had just told Mr. Key that he had heard a bear somewhere uh, in front of them. In an article on the same date in the Maryville Aloka Times, Mr. Key states, But it wasn't a bear. It was a man hiding in some bushes. He was definitely trying to hide from us. Mr. Key stated at the time that he didn't realize a boy was missing. Mr. Key read about the disappearance of Dennis Martin and then called the FBI two days later. And David Poise makes a big deal about how the FBI kind of ordered him not to tell the family or anyone about what he saw, um, you know, about the sort of man in the bushes, which would seem to be uh, kind of relevant. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a little bit of like, you know, if I actually looked into this because I felt like something was being left out. And it does seem like that same guy, Harold Key, eventually said that he saw that dude get into a white van. But he didn't say that at the time. He only said that hmm. later when he was 90 years old and was asked afterwards. But at the time, he did say that he thought the scream might have been a child's scream. But of course, what David Polites uh, is trying to say that is that the scream was mimics. like a Bigfoot howl. Uh, yeah, yeah, but so there's like the ambiguity around the scream uh, that... Um, you know, we're having. So, uh, yeah, like, um, so he saw this rough-looking man. Uh, the park authorities dismissed the likelihood that this had anything to do with it. Um, he later, uh, like, uh, David Polites later followed up with some of the Martins, um, and uh, he, he writes, I asked Mr. Martin what Mr. Key had told him that was not in the papers. Uh, Mr. Martin stated that the Keys had thought they saw a dark-figured man running along a ridgeline carrying something on his shoulder. I asked again Mr. Martin to explain what he just stated. I was in shock. Mr. Martin again said that the Keys had seen, the paper originally stated that the son thought they heard or saw a bear, and later reported the sightings as a dark-figured man running along a ridge carrying something on his shoulder. I asked Mr. Martin why the news and the park service had reported this information. Mr. Martin stated he didn't know. I asked Mr. Martin if he felt that the park service was withholding information from him. Uh, he paused at this point. Mr. Martin stated that the head of the park service was a mere figurehead, and there were times information smoothed <laughs> smoothly, and other times it did not. It appeared that Mr. Martin was contemplating saying something additional, so I asked if there was something else I should know. Mr. Martin hesitated several seconds, was looking at the ground, and slowly raised his head to look at me and stated, Do you know Jim Reich? I stated yes. He was the lead FBI agent on several of the missing children cases in the mountains around the time Dennis disappeared. Mr. Martin stated, Did you know he committed suicide? I was speechless for several seconds. I asked him if he felt the suicide had something to do with the cases of missing children. He stated he didn't know. Uh, mm, yes. Weird. Uh, there's, there, there's some, like, suspicious things going on around this. Uh, there was another uh, little uh, upsetting or strange uh, impression um, that he uh, got from some other guy. Um so, yeah, he interviewed this guy, Dwight, a retired MP Dwight McCarter, a retired MPS ranger and author of Lost, a ranger's journal of search and rescue. Uh, so uh, he, you know, he respected this guy, I guess. 
Another researcher and I found Dwight at his residence just outside the park boundaries. He was working on a car for his son when we walked up to his garage. We introduced ourselves as researching a book on missing people and asked if he wouldn't mind answering a few questions about his years of tracking. Dwight stated, sure. I started our conversation with Dwight explaining that we had interviewed Dennis Martin's father and that he had given us specific insight that was not found in any other public documents. I told Dwight that I was specifically interested in the key family observation in Rowan's Creek where they saw someone darting between trees, carrying something over his shoulder. Dwight started his response by explaining that he felt that it was very possible that a man could carry a boy between that point, the point that Dennis disappeared in the Rowan's Creek location, and the time frame of disappearance and the observation made by the Keys. I asked why the FBI and the NPS downplayed the sighting. Dwight stated that it was uh, the FBI that told the public and the NPS that this wasn't feasible and to discount the event. He stated that the FBI knows nothing about people moving through the woods and time frames of possibilities, yet they told everyone involved the key family setting was not relevant. Dwight went into an explanation of how he has made the walk from Spence Field to the area of Rowan's Creek and knows for a fact that this can be accomplished in the time allotment that was made when Dennis went missing until the Keys made their observation. I asked Dwight what he thought had made the sickening scream heard by the Keys. He stated that it might have been Dennis. I advised Dwight that the description of the scream by the Keys appears to be too loud for a small boy to have made. There is no response. I asked Dwight if he and other rangers were armed when Dennis Martin's disappearance occurred. He stated no. The vast majority of MPS rangers were not armed until the 1970s. I then asked whether he thought it was odd the Green Berets came to the park, set up their own communications, and went out into the woods armed. Dwight said that he did think it was a little strange, but he also stated that it was the military. Then he hesitated and stated that when the National Guard has assisted in the past, they were not armed. He stated the Green Berets really acted on their own and didn't interact with the National Park Service. I asked Dwight why one of the children of the Keys would first state that he observed a bear, and then his father said that they saw a man. Dwight hesitated for several minutes, and then he said that in and around the park there are wild men. He stated that there is more than one. They are hairy, dirty, and one even had an old bear skin that he wore. Dwight was careful with his words, but did state that these men live in the wild and were essentially living off the land in and around the park. I asked if he thought Dennis was taken by a wild man. He stated that at the time, he really gave it little thought. The only wild man he knew in the park at the time lived at the other end, near Cataluche Valley, and didn't venture into the area where Dennis has appeared at the area of Caddy's Cove at the bottom of Rowan's Creek. Dwight McCarter made it clear that the wild men he was speaking about were humans who decided to live in the wild. They had little contact with humanity, and they appeared as a name implied, wild and unkempt. Mm -hmm. This was the first, last, and only time I've ever heard anyone mention wild men inside the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So, uh, I mean, yeah, uh, he's obviously making certain, but you know, some of this stuff, like, I do think that the whole idea of like a bear taking a child, I mean, in the other stories, for instance, a bear taking a child and like cuddling it, like, would a bear do that? I mean, maybe it's possible. Uh, I, I mean, mean, I guess dolphins take care in, of humans. Yeah, it's not like, inconceivable, especially a small child who might kind of remind them of a bear cub or something. They wouldn't yeah. see it necessarily as like a threat or, um, you know, not necessarily want to eat it. So I think that. Yeah. Could it's be possible. a bear, could be literally like a proto Timothy McVeigh in the fifties, like living out in a national park, like running around naked, uh, just choosing to live that way, I guess. Mm. And might occasionally kidnap somebody. Um it's uh that's also possible. Yeah, there was also a missing North Carolina boy. Uh I guess uh the three year old boy really survived the woods for days with the help of a bear. Casey Hathaway, this is from a, a Inside Edition article. Uh-huh. Uh, Casey Hathaway went missing last month after he wandered into the woods while he was playing at a relative's North Carolina house. 
As his appearance prompted a massive search that made national news with hundreds of searchers joining in to look for the little boy. Temperatures dropped, combined with the driving rain, some feared the boys might be found dead, but three days later, a neighbor walked her dog, uh, walking her dog heard cries coming out of the woods and alerted rescuers. Casey was discovered tangled up in a thorn bush, cold and pleading for his mom. I don't think there's a word to describe how happy I was. Casey's mother, Brittany Hathaway, told Inside Edition of the moment she learned her son was alive. I wanted to go home, Casey added. Asked how he survived, young Casey credited a bear with keeping him safe. Is it really possible? Inside Edition spoke to wildlife expert Chris Lasher to get his take. It is possible that Casey saw a bear. Lasher said, adding that where Casey was found is perfect bear territory. Could Casey mm-hmm. have been mistaken for a cub? That is less clear, Lasher said. Bears are very nurturing animals, but they take care of their own. I'm not sure a bear would see a young child in distress as a possible something they have to take care of, Lasher explained. Still, Casey's mom believes her son. If he said he was with a bear, he was with a bear. Someone can't uh, come to grips with extreme possibilities. Uh, well, as, you know, I mean, but, the kid uh, also, but also believe the children if he said it well, was a bear, unless yeah, he, he mistook the bear for Bigfoot, uh, or, you know. I guess you're uh, right. Why wouldn't the kid say he was with Bigfoot? He, he mistook Bigfoot, Bigfoot for the like bear. At this point. Yeah, you're yeah, right. yeah. The kid isn't uh, saying that it was Bigfoot, so uh, maybe we should just hmm. let, you know. <laughs> let, maybe, maybe let yeah, that maybe lie. there's a whole other wrinkle of, like, nurturing bears that we need to deal with. I mean, as we talked about, there's obviously a Bigfoot bear transference. I mean, even the name Bigfoot was originally for bears. And the yes. whole for- yeah, the whole forest ride myth, which is another thing. I don't know if you've heard about this, but the idea that Bigfoot like will take women, human women, to have sex with them. Another sort of aspect of the sort of sexualization there, the huh. sort of sexual I mean, uh, yeah. fear around okay. Bigfoot. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, the forest bride thing was originally appro- applied to bears, I think, that they would take even women for for sexual needs so there's definitely some kind of conflation there and of course there's the so maybe bigfoot is a bear maybe he's not a, an ape maybe he's a maybe he's a bear um, yeah yeah but yeah, i mean yeah uh whatever they are i'm but i feel mm. like some of this might have to do with dog man too so i feel like we could go deeper into it uh well we will get know. to dog man one day i i don't know too much about dog man so i'm gonna have to well, kind of yeah, read there'll up be a crash and, course uh yeah you know uh, well, there's a lot of crossover i think between bigfoot and dog man but I yeah we'll definitely it. we got to do the teddy roosevelt bigfoot story maybe a little bit of a deeper dive into this missing 411 but for the time being, my verdict is that I'm a little sussed out, and I think that this guy just wants uh, these to be due to Bigfoot too much. You know what it kind of reminds me of? Like, the fact that he won't, like, mention Bigfoot per se, but is always kind of hinting at it. it well, it's kind of like Tom DeLonge and, like, the Disclosure document, or the Phenomenon documentary, where they, like, they're just, like, inching, they're just, like, tiptoeing around the big issue the entire time and saying there's a phenomenon happening. We need to understand yeah. it. We need the truth. But they don't just come out and, like, you know, tell us about the the draco you know like, yeah tell us about the draco they're, they're yeah, trying well, to play this respectability game uh but it yeah, doesn't exactly. actually end up working i was because... all, yeah i was also gonna say that it actually reminds me of like in like these uh like comic book movies or whatever where like the character has some dumb name or whatever and they like have to use it for the branding but they're trying to make it gritty and realistic so they try to like have it both ways where they're like we need to do something about this Batman or whatever, you know, yeah, or like in Casino yeah, exactly. Royale where he won't say like Bond, James Bond or like, 
you know, uh, well, we're the, what do they call that? Four of us, so uh, we should have a name. Oh, so what do they call that? What do they call that uh, on TV tropes? Like putting a lampshade on it? Yeah, like yeah, drawing attention think, to it to like to right. fuse people thinking that like it's yeah, sucks. like this um, is like you know the missing four one one books. I feel like are Bigfoot books, but like big the word Bigfoot is not used like it, it, maybe once or twice, but like uh-huh. very sparingly. Uh, yeah, and I it's have all to like say, I'm, I'm like not. You know? uh, I, I think uh, there's a lot of fascinating stuff here. I don't know if david polities is like one of those very convincing things at all i think he's just like he, he's almost the if you had to you know hold up like the one straw man of like wacky bigfoot researcher it kind of sounds like it would be this guy um yeah it's even interesting though, because he's kind of tried to make an escape from the bigfoot world by like yeah like trying to disguise what he's doing and try to make it because maybe that like casts a wider net because then you could be like like you know if you're not into bigfoot but you're into dog man or, or you're into ufos or even you could like, be like uh, oh, you know even true crime like weird true crime like missing yeah children, exactly kind of or you know cover-ups conspiracies but like really it's bigfoot stuff but yeah i mean i'm not like super uh i think that some of these stories are intriguing he does do some research you know he digs through these papers and finds these kind of weird little tales it is a bizarre phenomenon that like people disappear and then show up again like you know i think that there's yeah there's yeah. explanations like the hypothermia like you know it could cause hallucinations stuff like that you know there's many uh more accessible explanations but they are eerie stories and uh there's something you know there might be something in the draw like amidst the dross you know amidst all the uh the nonsense mm-hmm. here but yeah we can uh maybe uh like uh save that uh for bigfoot too since we're as i kind of uh sensed we're uh over three hours so uh we're uh, at three and a half now yeah we're at exactly yeah. three and a half so i'm this gonna is, all right, say let's stop we should this longer than the q yes <laughs> this is the ultimate q a uh this uh, is the one question that everyone really has um yeah okay. i'm sure um yeah we will be back next time on the public frequency with the q a where we'll yeah, do for another probably four do hour about episode s- to take up your whole work day. Uh, <laughs> another seven hour us. episode about yeah. Uh, make sure you ask question. a bunch of questions about Bigfoot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh man. Uh, um, yeah. uh, or I don't know. This episode might not be out before the Q and A. Yeah, so, it probably uh, won't be out. But uh, time so to let people know that they should inundate us with Bigfoot <laughs> questions so we can do it. another four hour <laughs> Bigfoot marathon. Yeah, yeah drat. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, no but yeah. it's been it's been an interesting ride um i'm uh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm more leaning uh personally towards the either uh kind of much like ufos like i, I could um entertaining might be a psyop might be gin yeah that's basically what i think i think it's probably both uh yeah, yeah, i am the both. same like i what mu- yeah much like ufos i can't get on board with the standard et hypothesis there's just too much it doesn't quite match up same yeah. way I can't get on board with a standard, like, hominid, like, you know, lost cryptid idea. It's got to be something, like, more than that or something There are some nature, big, big, you know? hairy, invisible hands. Well, it's weird here. because, like, all these, like, scientific Bigfoot people are always, like, listen to the natives, you know, native wisdom. But the natives don't say this is, like, a lost ape, you know, that usually has some kind of mystical quality to it. To use no, they don't. Word, mystical, or at least know. that's not uh, uh, that's not critically important to their understanding and indeed deep friendship with this creature <laughs> uh-huh. uh, in the mountains of Dagestan. Um, yeah, true. And, um, um, yes. 
uh, word. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, before okay. we hit 341, which I think is our record, uh, let's uh, wrap <laughs> it up here. All right. Um, so, uh, yeah. So uh, we will see y'all next time. And um, uh, until <laughs> next time, dear listeners, uh, keep your eyes on the trees. Yeah. Um, don't, yeah, make sure that you don't uh, miss the, the forest for the trees or miss the, miss the Bigfoot for the forest. I guess. I don't know. But, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, um, uh, keep an eye yeah. out. Um, if you find some rock apes, thank them for their military service is an yeah. auxiliary force, the want- national liberation front in Vietnam. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, make sure that, you, you know, if you encounter any rock apes, like, just burn your passport in front of them. Maybe they'll stand down and not <laughs> throw <laughs> rocks at you. Um, yes, and, and uh, uh, we, we yeah. salute you, rock apes. Um, yes. You did a great uh, if job. If you're wandering in the forest, do not think about a sexual partner um, because you might find yourself enticed by an otter. You know, don't uh, let your guard down around the otters. Um you know, and if you hear the voice of your dead sister uh, luring you to taste of some food, uh, make sure that you you confirm that it's not like driftwood or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, if a, if a band of seemingly friendly uh, or beautiful women canoes up to you and offers you an oar, uh, make sure that it's not just a bunch of minks. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, set the oar on fire and throw it into the water yeah and break the spell um, whatever it is um yeah so yeah uh, uh word yeah and we'll um, catch y'all next time don't trust the national park service uh they're just you know pawns in a large game and the original blm ally yeah true. of all cryptids yeah you were speculating that when that guy uh that one star general said, said that blm was working with the giants maybe yeah that was bureau of land was. management obviously yeah, exactly. uh they control um, the derelict mine shafts in this country so yeah i think yeah. maybe we should try to get this episode out into like the bigfoot sphere you know maybe they would want to listen to it you know um we'll use hashtag we could try they're they're a dedicated crowd so they're a dedicated crowd yeah Yeah. um yeah i could post it on bigfoot reddit but they probably just downvote me again because they hate everything that's serious uh and they hate any big contributions to the field anyway anyways uh uh, yeah yeah yeah. so uh until next time dear listeners uh stay vigilant peace so thick you can't see the forest no tv no internet where the digital age ain't ruin things
something to scare baby squirrels with There ain't no creature could be so dumb and selfish Bigfoot sleeps in the undergrowth Don't drive a car, don't burn no coal Lives on the land, don't turn the soil Don't leave no doubt.